0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Though Rodney Alcala has never risen to a Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or even a Richard Nightstalker Ramirez level of infamy, he's just as terrifying. Born Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor, on April 23rd, 1943, Rodney Alcala seemed to many to be a cool, artsy, handsome, likable guy. But underneath his charisma, Rodney was a violent, particularly cruel sexual sadist, a rapist and killer who used a big friendly smile, knack for small talk, and a talent for photography to get his victims to go somewhere alone with him for a photo shoot that would often end in their torture and death. He was deceptive, manipulative, and charming. So charming He managed to convince his parole officer to let him violate the conditions of his parole to travel from Los Angeles to New York. Once in New York, he disappeared for a few years under the alias of John Berger, where he would rape and kill at least one young woman before being brought back to L.A. After brief incarceration on the West Coast, after taking a plea deal for kidnapping, brutally raping, and attempting to murder an eight-year-old girl, he got right back to raping and killing. And after he killed some of his victims, he would pose their bodies to inflict more pain on whoever found them. He clearly enjoyed further defiling the girls and women as well, girls and women who had never wronged him. Before being posed, his victims suffered tremendously. My God, how they suffered. The women and girls who had the great misfortune of spending their final moments with Rodney were beaten, bitten, bound, and raped in a variety of extremely violent ways. They were strangled to the point of losing consciousness, only to be brought back for further torture, rape, and strangulation. And such an odd moment in history, in the middle of a spree of sexual violence, In 1979, Rodney appeared on the popular TV show, The Dating Game. This will earn him his post-arrest murderous nickname of the dating game killer. Bachelor number one would even be picked to go out on a date. And then he got right back to his heinous ways. In the end, Rodney was convicted of seven murders, but strongly thought by investigators to have killed at least nine women and girls. Many think he may have killed over a hundred women and girls due to an enormous collection of photographs found in a storage locker he rented in Seattle, and photographs found in its home in L.A., many of the photos being sexually explicit and featuring obviously underage subjects. And many of the subjects have never been identified. So why did he do what he did? That's one of the many questions we'll try and answer today in another true crime. Be thankful you are not waking up bound, bleeding, and staring into the eyes of this violent, depraved, and horny maniac edition of Time Suck.
1: This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening.
0: Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the cult of the curious. I'm Dan Cummins, a suck master, troll farm fertilizer foreman. Guy happy to still be alive after talking so much shit about strong pony boy Putin last week. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, help take my mind off this dark shit when the suck is over. Lucifina. you know what to do. Praise jangles and Glory B to Triple M, a couple quick announcements, and then a monster true crime episode to dive into. Uh, Thanks so much to everyone who came to the shows at Good Nights in Raleigh. Uh, You guys are fire. Uh, Looking forward to Salt Lake City, Springfield, Missouri, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Davenport, Iowa, and Chicago, you know where, coming up. Uh, All current stand-up dates listed at dancummins.tv. For this week's merch, how do you guys and gals feel about business? Business, business, call 1 800 business if you like business money. 800 with a 1 in front. Business, business, Princeton, interest, Beverly Hills, dividends, profit, losses, more profit than losses, business. So much business, chicken wings, convertibles, tennis lessons, business, stocks and bonds and NFTs, silver dollars, gold bars and golf. Checks, money, orders, wire, transfers, IOUs, polo shirts, khakis, other business things. 1 800 business. Uh, we don't have a t shirt with Menendez Brothers Investment Enterprise on the front and 1 800 business on the back. For all you business lovers, you got to handle your business. Uh, it's badmagicmerch.com. Put on, your, put on your khakis, tighten your belt, and do business. Uh, Also, if you've liked the animations you've seen across the Time Sucks, Scared to Death, and Is We Dumb Facebook and Instagram profiles for well over a year now, and you've thought, uh, I'd like to have something animated, well, you can hit up our animator, Thomas Royal, great dude, talented artist, super competitive uh, animation rates, and he's fast. His Instagram handle, SaltyMonkey123, YouTube channel profile, SaltyMonkey, and you can email Thomas at SaltyMonkeyAnimation at gmail.com. That's pretty easy. SaltyMonkeyAnimation at gmail.com. All right. Now, now off to true crime we go. A topic that strangely uh, is not divisive. Huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, help, help us, Nimrod. What's wrong with this? Why do, why do I like this stuff so much? Why do so many <laughs> people like this stuff so much? Like learning about it. Not actually like doing this stuff. Oh my gosh. Actually today, especially graphic details of sexual brutality. Uh, toy box killer, Bob Burdella, Kansas City Butcher level of horror today. I don't uh, often give a lot of warning. Sometimes I just forget. Uh, most time took episodes, extremely graphic in a variety of ways. But today's shit is just uh, especially brutal in moments. Let's get to work. <music> a fairly straightforward structure for today's episode. Uh, the life and times and, of course, the crimes of Rodney Alcala. Uh, sometimes pronounced, I think I did that in the preview last week, uh, Alcala. Uh, I would say eighty percent of the people I found on videos would say uh, alkaline, so I'm going with that. Uh, we'll cover his brutal crimes, his appearance in the dating game, and the uh, strange saga of trials that followed his final arrest. While sometimes we talk about the circumstances surrounding a killer's life and crimes at the top of the show, there's, there's really not uh, all that much to talk about with Rodney. Unlike many of the killers we previously covered, uh, he didn't seem to have a horrible childhood. Not at all. No history of abuse, physical or sexual, neither alleged nor confirmed. His father did leave the family when Rodney was an elementary uh, school age kid, but that's sadly not that unusual. Uh, When Rodney was growing up, the divorce rate in the U.S. was rapidly rising, and it was becoming far more common than it used to be to be raised by a single mom or a blended family. Rodney was born in 1943, and there was a huge spike in divorce rates in the U.S. after World War II. Some have suggested that, uh, you know... Because many families were strained under the burden of living with a man who may have been incapacitated during the war, or maybe he came home a much different man than he was when he left to fight. Some with severe PTSD back when no one knew how to treat that, that, you know, led to a lot of divorces. Also, a lot of women had found a new kind of freedom while working during the war years. And with the war over, a lot of them didn't want to give that up. There were 610,000 total divorces in the U.S. in 1946 compared to 236,000 total divorces, far less than half of the 1946 total, exactly a decade earlier. Um, and in addition to more divorces, plenty of fathers were staying around and abusing their kids or simply leaving without getting a divorce. No one had perfect parents. And Rodney's parents, it uh, was well, mom at least, a lot better than most. And his dad seemed to be good before he left. Uh, you know, actually just by not abusing or molesting Rodney before he left, he was certainly better than uh, many of the serial killer dads we've met here. So really hard to blame who he'd become later on childhood father abandonment issues. Hard, hard to blame who he'd become later on really any environmental issues. There just doesn't seem to be any aha moment from Rodney's childhood or teenage years that points to how Rodney became the killing machine he was. From what we know, there was no point of trauma, no head injury that fucked up his brain's, you know, ability to uh, regulate morality and impulsivity. Nothing that clearly unlocks some kind of hidden rage inside of him. Nothing that clearly jumps out as the moment he uh, crossed over into darkness. And I think that this makes him uh, more frightening than he'd be if we could point to some moment that turned him from a regular person into a monster. You know, what's scarier than the idea that someone who's shown basically no signs of being abnormal except a, uh, a brief psychiatric stay in a hospital after deserting the army, uh, and then he just starts brutally attacking women and girls at the age of 25. But is that really when he started killing Alcala's attack on Tali Shapiro in 1968, the first crime of his that we know about, uh, once incarcerated, he never decided to clear his conscience and reveal the locations of more bodies. Too selfish, too evil to do anything like that. And a lot of people think that he killed way more people than he was caught for. So who knows when it truly started? Uh, He may have been attacking women long before and girls long before he attacked Tali. Authorities would later find more than, uh, you know, 2,000 photos of young women and girls in Alcala's possession Uh, They knew for a fact that some of them were dead, probably his victims. The question was, you know, just how many? And more than that, how the hell did he get away with it for so long? Several factors helped him keep killing. Uh, No ability to use DNA to link killers and rapists to their crimes in the 70s. Less stranger danger when he was active compared to now. Uh, No one was listening to a podcast like this one, for one thing. And he was one of many other similar killers. Uh, Detectives had their hands pretty full when Rodney was active. He hunted during an especially active era of serial killers and hunted in a few cities that were notorious for serial killers, you know, New York and L.A. Criminal justice expert Peter Vronsky says that more than 80 percent of all known American serial killers operated between 1970 and 1999. We've covered many of them here, uh, like the Golden State Killer, episode 90, suspected of committing at least a dozen murders, 50 rapes and 100 burglaries in California between 1974 and 1986. Wouldn't be until 2018 that Joseph D'Angelo would be arrested for those crimes, and then in 2020, he'd receive 11 consecutive life sentences for 13 counts of first-degree murder and 13 kidnap-related charges. There's also John Wayne Gacy. Episode 68 who would go down as one of the most notorious U.S. serial killers in history. 1978, uh, Gacy confessed to murdering 33 teenage boys and young men, most of their bodies found buried under his house. While Gacy targeted young men, most other serial killers went after young women in the 70s. Most in general have. The man who should have uh, uh, inside of the most fear probably seemed the least suspicious of them all to people he met, uh, Ted Bundy. Episode 11, probably need to redo that episode. Suck didn't dive as deep back then. Before his execution in 1989, Bundy confessed to killing 30 women. Many believe he was responsible for the deaths of a hundred or more. A crowded playing field definitely seemed to have helped the dating game killer get away with more crimes. For a while, investigators thought the Hillside Stranglers were responsible for some of Rodney's crimes. A little refresher on them. We've mentioned them, but uh, you had to properly suck those dirtbags. From October 1977 to February 1978, the bodies of 10 women found in a hilly area above Los Angeles. With no leads, the media began attributing the victims to the Hillside Strangler. It was only after Kenneth Bianchi was arrested for the killings of two women in Washington that he would confess to uh, the Hillside Strangler murders and then implicate his cousin, Angela Buono, as his partner in crime. Also at the same time as Rodney uh, was murdering young women in New York The son of Sam, David Berkowitz, episode 167, in the middle of his reign of terror. His six murder victims were usually young women with long, dark hair, reports of which caused many New Yorkers to panic, beginning with his first killing in April of 1976. He'd wound over half a dozen others. And though you might suspect someone like Berkowitz, rude, dirty, seemingly insane, uh, the crimes he committed, you probably wouldn't have suspected Alcala. He was charming and attractive. Uh, those who knew him, uh, you know, knew that Rodney was doing some red flag shit, like, for, uh, you know, taking pictures of boys and girls naked. Uh, Rodney even assured them that he was doing it because their parents asked and uh, just part of like an art project of sorts. And for some reason, they uh, found that to be an acceptable uh, reason. While that makes zero fucking sense to me as a reasonable explanation now, I guess it was a different era, a very different era. I would hope now that if some friend of yours showed you their portfolio of essentially kitty porn. A story of, uh, well, their mom asked me to take these pics. Would not deter you from contacting the authorities. She called the authorities on them and uh, try and track down that kid's mom. You know, and uh, dude, uh, uh, is this what it looks like? A photo of a naked kid playing with the dildo? <laughs> yes, but let me explain. It's cool. It's totally cool. Uh, you know, it's, uh, well, it's, her mom. Her mom brought the dildo to the shoot. It was, uh, her, it was her, her dildo that the kid was playing with. Yeah, that doesn't make it okay, Rodney. That actually makes it more disturbing. Why is this girl wearing lingerie and bent over spreading her butt cheeks? Because her mom said that uh, she had once taken the same kind of photo herself. And she wanted to do some kind of mom-daughter collage for Mother's Day or something. Maybe put it on the fridge. Dude, that's even more fucked up. Why don't you call the police on the mom, you fucking creep? The more you talk, the worse it gets. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that the photos of Rodney's, uh, you know, uh, the people Rod, people were seeing of Rodney's were quite that explicit. I don't think they were. But many were apparently very sexual in nature. Many were sexually graphic, and uh, many were so sexually graphic they've actually never been released to the public. Had Rodney tried to pull off his killing spree now, I, I would hope he would get caught quicker. Rodney was killing during a time before Stranger Danger was a mainstay of children's education, when hitchhiking was still a common and socially accepted way to get around, and when a lot of people believed, uh, you know, it was okay, I guess, to uh, take pictures of fucking nude kids as a fine art photographer. And, uh, you know, it was an era when he was killing, when, when people couldn't fact check you online on their phone really quick, make sure you are who you say you are. Uh, too many people mistakenly believed also that good looking people must be good people. And that winning the dating show, for example, meant you, uh, must be a good, cool guy. Rodney Alcala, not a good, cool guy. Uh, let's find out who he actually was. Take a long journey. I think a very interesting journey, darkly interesting down today's time suck timeline. But first, uh, let's listen to some of his dating game appearance. I just want you to hear this creep before you get to know him any better. Um, yeah, he was, uh, he, was, he was a hit on the show.
1: Well, let's see. Back to number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. Between takes, he might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcalá. Rod, welcome. Alcalá. And it's time to meet our young lady for game number one, and here she is. Here is a young lady with a wealth of experience. She once earned a living massaging feet, but she quit when her boss suggested that she work her way up. Then she taught school in Phoenix, Arizona, and now she's here to educate our three bachelors in the art of amour. Welcome, if you will, sensational Cheryl Bradshaw. Hello, Cheryl. Mm, Don't sit down yet. Just a minute. I want to make sure everything is straight. You relax, you feel okay? All right, you know there are three bachelors over there. There'll be one, two, and three. Ask them anything you like to find out more about them except their name, age, occupation, or income, okay? And we're going to start by having them say hello to you and see how they sound. Number one, would you say hello to Cheryl, please? We're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. Okay, here we go.
2: Bachelor number one. Yes? What's your best time?
1: The best time is at night. Nighttime.
2: Why do you say that?
0: Because that's the only time there is.
2: The only time. What's wrong with uh, morning? After.
0: Sorry, that's so creepy in this context of who he is. I mean, a weird thing to say. I think already, because that's the only time there is. There's just no. Let's just fuck right now, Cheryl. He just feels very forward.
2: Noon.
1: Well, they're okay, but nighttime is when it really gets good. Uh-huh. Really ready.
2: I'm a drama teacher. And I'm going to audition each of you for my private class. Bachelor number one. You're a dirty old man. Take it.
1: Come on, over here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, that's especially creepy, considering who, who ended up being. Oh boy.
2: Oh, honey. Like we had to go out and boogie. Really? A bachelor number one, I am serving you for dinner. Oh. What are you called and what do you look like?
1: I'm called the banana
0: and I look really good. How is the audience laughing that hard? I'm called the banana and I look really good. Oh, all right. Uh, easy crowd.
2: Can you be a little
0: more descriptive? Peel me. <laughs> uh, so that's that's him. That's him. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think he was nearly as funny as Cheryl did, or the audience. Uh, maybe it's because, though, I, I know who he is now. And um, and I don't like he made a sexual association with Branagh. That, that's my thing. If you don't know why I'm saying that, don't even worry about it. It'll take too long to explain that reference. Uh, looks wise, Rodney seemed uh, totally normal. Just a regular horny dude in the 70s trying to hook up with a hot single lady. That same guy who charmed both Cheryl and the audience. I don't know how he did it, but he did that day. Uh, she'd pick him up for her, for her, or she'd pick him for her date. And uh, he had already savagely raped, sexually tortured, and killed women by this point. All right, now let's meet the boy who would become this monster in today's Time Suck Timeline.
1: Trap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck time suck timeline. April twenty third,
0: nineteen forty three, Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor. Uh, born in San Antonio, Texas to Raul Alcala Bucor and Anna Marie Gutierrez. He had an older brother, Raul, born uh, two years prior in 1941, and an older sister, Marie Therese, born the year before 1942. On April 24th, 1947, Rodney's youngest sister, Marie Christine, that's fun. <laughs> two, oh boy, okay. So you named um, named uh, both girls the the same same first name. That's uh, that's really cool. Uh, April 24th, 1947. Yeah. Okay. Christine is born and uh, young Rodney, only four years old, uh, takes photos of her birth. He somehow even talked to his mom and let him take uh, spread Eagle pics of her vagina in the days and weeks leading up to Marie's birth, uh, saying he needed to figure out what best angles and lighting to use. <laughs> Kidding. Obviously, at least I hope uh, that was obvious. Uh, the following year, 1948, Rodney starts kindergarten. First goes to St. Joseph Catholic elementary, St. Joseph church, now surrounded by a bunch of big shops at river center, retail and entertainment complex. In San Antonio, not far from the Alamo, actual Saint Joseph School. From what I can tell, no longer around. At some point in his primary education, uh, Rodney moves to study at Mount Secret Heart Catholic School, uh, which is still there today, serving kindergartners through eighth graders. Mount Secret heart that's kind of a weird name, too. Not as expensive as some of the schools we've covered in the Epstein suck, but uh, not super cheap either. Between six eight k a year. Looks like a good school. Uh, the Alcala um, kids all attended either public or private Catholic schools. In their elementary years. Um, and I guess it's Al yeah. I always want to put Al Ka, Alcala, 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 I don't know, his name. I have written so many pronunciation guides and said it so many times in practice, and it just maybe it's just I just don't know any other alcalas, Alcalas. Uh it does not roll off the tongue. Uh the religious education, very important to their devoutly Catholic mother. The kids all lived in an average middle-class neighborhood in a four-bedroom home not far from the Alamo. Rodney and Raul each had their own bedrooms. Sisters had to share one, uh, two sisters, same first name, sharing a room. Uh, I guess uh, this family, uh, g- girls don't matter as much. Uh, elementary school, not as much to report on Rodney. Excellent student, getting good grades, said to be respectful and kind with above average intelligence. He may have had way above average intelligence. Various sources will list his IQ online as being anywhere uh, from 125 to 170. Uh, genius being 116 and above. He shows up in some online lists of serial killers as being the smartest serial killer ever caught, but, uh, you know, uh, these sources, none of them seem to point to how his IQ was determined, Uh, other than, uh, you know, in one book, he just like says that he was in Mensa, and I don't know, maybe he was a genius. At the very least, I do think he was very intelligent. Uh, Definitely a little brighter than Ed Gein, Carl Denke, Yahim Kroll, many of the dirtbags we've covered. 1951, when Rodney is eight, his maternal grandma becomes terminally ill, exact illness, not cited in sources. And she decides that she wants to spend her final years back in Mexico with her family. So uh, Rodney and his family, they pack up, they move to Mexico where Rodney attends uh, his first non-Catholic school. He goes to a private school ran by the Satanic Temple. Mm -hmm. Just like Catholic schools, uh, there are Satanic schools in some places. Uh, Interestingly, uh, no one molests him. Uh he gets uh, you know, a great education, learns uh fantastic humanistic ethics, taught to have a very uh healthy relationship with sexuality, also to think critically, not base his personal code of ethics and any sort of fear of uh divine punishment, and uh and he does great, you know, for a couple of years. Uh JK, no, he just goes to a regular public school. Can you imagine if the satanic temple did open some schools? I, I would find it uh fascinating. I would I would think it would be great. Just because I bet I bet it would be great schools, and just because oh, it would just cause so much disruption. Oh, so Oh, the people like the Westboro Baptist Church, oh, they would lose their fucking minds. Anyway, while living in Mexico, his grandma passes away in 1952 or 1953. And then in 1954, his dad leaves the family. Looked through multiple biographies, multiple sources. Uh, None of them give a good reason why he left. Almost all of them talk about him just leaving. It appears that either Rodney never knew why or he just never chose to tell biographers or journalists. In one source, it did say that Rodney and his father uh, had grown incredibly close in the 18 months prior to his dad leaving and that his father's departure hit him the hardest out of his siblings. And I'm sure it was devastating. Again, though, not sure how you twist that around in your head and use it to justify raping and killing girls and women. Uh, his abandonment by his father and his later violence towards women, I, I would think at least mostly, if not totally unrelated. If paternal abandonment led directly to the serial killing of women, holy shit, America might have a Bit of a lady shortage right now. Uh, Soon after Rodney's dad leaves, still in 1954, the family leaves Mexico and relocate to Los Angeles, California. Rodney's mom enrolls the 11-year-old in St. Alphonsus in East LA, where he goes to school for two years. That school's still there today. 1956, age 13, Rodney finishes eighth grade, then attends high school at a private school called Cantwell Sacred Heart of Mary in Montebello, California, small city bordering East Los Angeles uh, to the east of East Los Angeles. Uh, during his last year um, of high school. Well, you know what? I think I might've written that down right. It's right next to East Los Angeles. I think it might actually be West. Now that I'm picturing my head on a a map. Uh, During his last year of high school, he decides he's had enough of uh, religious education and insists on being transferred to public school. Goes to Montebello High School. That's still there today as well. Uh, If anything bad happened to him in any of these schools, he never said anything about it. 1958, for his 15th birthday, uh, Rodney's mom gives him a camera, nothing too fancy. Not top of the line or anything, but he loves it. It immediately becomes his most prized possession. And now, I was joking earlier, but now he talks mommy into a photo shoot. Nothing too scandalous. Just some arthouse stuff. Uh, nothing too sexual outside of a ball gag and some nipple clamps and, uh, you know, topless, a lot of anal play. Kidding uh, again. Now, the camera does become his most prized possession, though. <laughs> Last night when I was finishing my notes, uh, maybe I was tired, but it became very funny to me just to uh, picture him constantly uh, pushing his mom to take scandalous photo shoots. Uh, he'll hop on his bike. He'll pedal all the way to Hollywood and the Hollywood Hills looking for celebrities to take pics. He really does that. Thinks he's like, uh, imagine he's part of the paparazzi. Starts telling people he's going to be a professional photographer someday. 1960, Rodney, just 17. Now graduates from high school. Uh, at the top of his class. People knew him as a fun and outgoing guy. Handsome, smart, a ladies man who always seemed to have a, a lineup of dates. God, I wonder what those girls would have to say now about their dates with Rodney. None of them, to my knowledge, have ever come forward and shared details I guess why would they? Uh, interestingly, future Southern California police chief, David L. Snowden, would graduate the same high school the following year, 1961. wonder if he remembered uh, Crossing paths with Rodney. He's listed as a notable alumni of Montebello High School. Rodney is not for some reason. It uh, doesn't seem like he would ever end up investigating Rodney. June 19th, 1961, Rodney enters a program in North Carolina to become a paratrooper after enlisting in the U.S. Army the previous year. He'll serve primarily as a clerk in the Army for four years. Why'd he put his photography career on hold to join the military? No idea. August 1st, 1962, just a couple weeks before Rodney's 19th birthday, he gets a letter from his mom informing him that his dad had unexpectedly passed away in Tulare County, California. Uh, Rodney had not spoken to his father in years, but he and his family attend the funeral and Rodney is shocked to find out his dad had remarried and had more kids. That would be pretty fucking weird to not find that out until the funeral. Uh, what a strange thing. Some people do completely walk away from their, their family, you know, their kids, and then just have like more kids with somebody else. Wish I, wish I knew why he did it. About a year later, 1963, Rodney suddenly turns up at home while his mom's cooking dinner one night. She's incredibly surprised when she asks Rodney w- why he's home. He tells her the truth that he's hitchhiked home and gone AWOL. He had hitchhiked over 2,500 miles. She's upset with him. Tells him to turn himself in. He doesn't want to. Uh, instead he wants to take some pics of her. Nothing weird, nothing weird, nothing weird this time. Just a normal son and, and mom, just a boudoir shoot, just a healthy son, uh, taking some lingerie, uh, maybe some topless, maybe some full nudie pics of a sexy, sexy mommy. <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, now that I've started that stupid joke, it's, uh, it's, it's hard for me to stop it. Uh, Roddy's mom really did want him to turn himself in. After a few days, he relented. He went to the local army detachment, uh, told him about how he deserted. He's now interviewed by several different officers. He's eventually sent to an army psychologist who hospitalizes him. Uh, tells him that he needs urgent psychological care. When the hospital checks with Rodney's superior officers back in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, they learned that in the last few weeks before he went AWOL, Rodney had been unable to perform his regular duties and seemed to have suffered from some type of nervous breakdown. Uh, No one seems to know like what triggered it. Rodney was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder by a military psychiatrist and was honorably discharged on medical grounds now. So what is antisocial personality disorder? Uh, a very serious, very concerning mental illness. It's uh, it's fucking scary. Antisocial, uh, Antisocial personality disorder is a mental condition in which a person consistently shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of others. We've talked about it before several times, but uh, rarely if ever by that name. It's oftentimes called uh, sociopathy. You know, so it means you're a sociopath. I did not know the two terms were synonymous, actually. Or if I knew ones, I forgot. Uh, People with antisocial personality disorder tend to antagonize, manipulate, treat others harshly or with callous indifference. Uh, They show no guilt or remorse for their behavior, lack empathy. Other symptoms can include, but are not limited to, disregard for right and wrong, persistent lying or deceit to exploit others, arrogance, a sense of superiority and being extremely opinionated, repeatedly violating the rights of others through intimidation and dishonesty, Using charm or wit to manipulate others for personal gain or personal pleasure. that will be a big one for Rodney. Unnecessary risk-taking or dangerous behavior with no regard for the safety of self self or others. And that'll be another big one for Rodney. Didn't give a fuck about other safety. Uh, Individuals with antisocial personality disorder will often violate the law, becoming criminals. Uh, They may lie, behave violently or impulsively and have problems with drug or alcohol use because of these characteristics. People with this, this disorder... Uh, often can't fulfill responsibilities related to family, work, or school. Well, of course, not all people with antisocial personality uh, disorder become serial killers. Almost all serial killers have antisocial traits, if not this full-blown disorder, right? That makes sense. A lot of sociopaths. Uh, when Rodney's released from the hospital, he returns home, seems to feel more like himself. He will later claim that racial abuse contributed to his nervous breakdown in Fort Bragg, and he now Americanizes his own name a bit and goes from Rodrigo Jacques Bucor to Rodney James Alcala in order to sound uh, less Mexican. Maybe he did experience racial abuse in Fort Bragg in the late 60s, probably did, uh, but that can't uh, turn you into a sociopath. And before I move on from this, I think I, I said, you know, he worked uh, as a clerk for several years and the, and the timeline doesn't seem to match up with what I said when he got discharged uh, totally. There was a lot of, uh, often with these serial killers, there's just so many clickbait articles and even, like, biographies where, you know, you you look through enough of them and watch enough documentaries, you're like, well, this is clearly bullshit. This is based in no court records or nothing. And with this guy, maybe because he's not as well known, it was uh, tougher than usual to discern fact from fiction. And also, uh, it, it, the people who are writing these, this guy lied his ass off uh, all the time, uh, you know, and told people a lot of different stories, which is also common, with these uh, serial killers. And when they're being interviewed, you know they'll tell one journalist one story about their childhood and their young adulthood, another person, another story. You know, the timelines get a little fuzzy. So sorry if that happens uh, here and there. Uh, but back to his uh, possible racial abuse. Yeah, he maybe he did, but uh, yeah, they can't turn you into a sociopath. The exact cause of antisocial personality disorder, how you become a sociopath, not known, but... They strongly believe genes may may, uh, make you more vulnerable to developing this disorder and life situations may trigger the development changes in the way the brain functions may, uh, you know, result uh, uh, during brain development. So as you're growing up certain environmental, like, you know, triggers, uh, genetic triggers can suddenly kind of change your brain chemistry. And I don't know, now you just don't have any fucking empathy. Um, Basically he had it by the time he made it to Fort Bragg. After leaving the military, he enrolls in the school of fine arts at UCLA in Los Angeles And then we lose sight of any real details regarding his life for about five years until uh, 1968. Uh, Was he raping or killing during these years? Uh, It's very possible. In the spring of 1968, Rodney graduates from UCLA with a Bachelor of Fine Arts and Photography. Also falls into some unexpected money. On the day he graduates, his stepmom, a woman he hadn't even known until his dad died, until right after his dad died, uh, paid his portion of his father's life insurance policy into his bank account. And now he moves into an apartment on uh, DeLong Prix Avenue or Boulevard, DeLong Prix Boulevard in Hollywood, a uh, neighborhood he'd always dreamed of living in, complete with a little white picket fence out front and a cozy veranda in the back. He bought himself two further luxuries uh, a beige Chevy convertible and a brand new Helena 35X viewfinder camera containing a two bladed leaf shutter with speeds of one slash uh, t- 25 you know, seconds up to one slash 200 seconds. Uh, With this purchase came 10 free rolls of 35 millimeter film. And now if he wasn't already doing this before, 25 year old Alcala starts taking a a new kind of photo. He was done photographing celebrities, birds, trees, any of that kind of stuff. Now he is ready to just kind of finally focus on his mom. (laughs) No, I mean, he's uh, now going to start taking pictures of women, underage girls, and also underage boys. So actually, actually worse than his mom. He uses new film rolls exclusively for these kind of photos. Then a few months later, if he hadn't already done something similar before, he does a lot more than take some pics. Yeek. Now we're getting into the shit. September 9th, 1968. Age 25, Rodney's cruising down Sunset Boulevard. He sees an eight-year-old girl he finds attractive, decides the time is right to strike. Fucking eight years old. So, so young. Tali Shapiro walking down Sunset Boulevard on her way to school. Gardner Elementary. She's new to the area of West Hollywood she's in right now as her home had burned down recently and telling her family, now staying at the famous Chateau Marmont. Uh, Incidentally, Chateau Marmont, uh, one of the most luxurious hotels on the Strip, one of the most famous hotels in the United States. In the first half of the 20th century, stars like Greta Garbo, Betty Davis, John Wayne, Marilyn Monroe were regular faces there. In the 60s now, when this is happening, rock stars uh, frequenting the hotel Chateau Marmont, uh, the place where Jim Morrison from the doors jumped off the balcony in his suite, uh, where John Bonham from Led Zeppelin famously drove his motorcycle into the lobby. Uh, Tally probably had no idea about all that though. She was fucking eight years old. She just knew that uh, her and her parents staying there because her house had burned down. Right now, she's supposed to go to school. So she sets off. Rodney drives up, pulls up to the curb, offers her uh, a ride. She's torn. She's been told not to talk to strangers, but also respect your elders. She also never had to uh, worry about the world hurting her. Didn't really understand how evil a stranger could be. Rodney tells her he knows her parents. They've uh, told him he can give her a ride. Since she is not used to adults lying to her, she believes him and gets in the car. And she would have never lived to let us know these details if it weren't for a good Samaritan, Donald Haynes, who watched uh, her get into Rodney's car. He just happened to be parked nearby. Something about their exchange did not sit well with him. He didn't like the looks of Rodney, a guy whose car had no license plate. Mm Mm-hmm. After Tali got into the car, he follows them to an apartment complex. Once there, he watches Rodney lead her into uh, an apartment and uses a payphone to call the LAPD. LAPD officer Chris Camacho gets the call from dispatch to go check things out. When he gets to the apartment, his spidey senses also uh, going off. You know, something doesn't feel right about all this. He calls in another officer for backup. Then he goes up to the apartment door, starts knocking. Calls out, you know, needs to speak to Rodney. Rodney uh, barely cracks the door open, has a little security chain still attached. Asks what the problem is when Camacho says he needs to come inside and check on a report on a young girl. Rodney tells him there's no girl and uh, he's nude and has just gotten out of the shower and will need a few seconds to get dressed before letting him in. Then he slams the door shut. Now Officer Camacho really has a bad feeling in his gut. If Rodney had just gotten out of the shower, uh, why wasn't he wet? Camacho now breaks the fucking door down. Hail, Officer Camacho. Once inside, first thing he sees is blood on the kitchen floor. So much blood. Then he sees a pair of Mary Janes on the floor next to Tali's body. She's not moving. Rodney's gone. He had just slipped out the back. Camacho first thought Tali was dead. She's laying nude and motionless on her back next to a pile of her crumpled up clothes. She'd lost so much fucking blood. But then he hears gargling. She's choking on some of her blood. And uh, officers see that, you know, Tali's alive, but barely. She'd been raped, strangled, beaten. Now the choice was to go after Rodney or try to save her life. So Camacho tries to save her life. Uh, His partner chases after, or the, you know, the backup officer chases after, uh, um, oh my gosh, Alcala Rodney, but doesn't find him. Uh, Camacho uh, will later say, when I was in Vietnam and we were in combat, I was trying to save this guy and didn't do it. He died. So with Tali, it was kind of like God gave me a second chance to save someone. Uh, He used a towel to lift a 10-pound metal bar off her neck. Then he carefully tilted her head to the side, allowing her to cough up blood and clear her airway. Once she was breathing normally again, he covered her nude body in a blanket before calling for an ambulance and LAPD backup. The girl had been beaten with a metal bar, then brutally raped. Uh, A pool uh, of blood on the tiled floor had come from between her legs. Fuck, her pulse is faint, but Camacho somehow knows she's going to make it. Ambulance is there within minutes. And after he makes sure that Tali uh, is safe with the EMTs, he conducts a quick search of the apartment without touching anything with his bare hands to contaminate the crime scene. Finds dozens of printed photos of young girls on a coffee table in the living room. And in one corner behind a black velvet curtain, uh, a makeshift darkroom with film, more prints, negatives, plastic chemical containers, other, uh, you know, photographic equipment. Many of the girls in the photos clearly way underage uh, in their underwear and the nude uh, often captured the, the photos through their bedroom or bathroom windows. Girls who had no idea, some fucking creep, was out in the bushes snapping photos. Uh, later that day, after speaking to neighbors and you know finding a UCLA student ID in the apartment, investigating Detective Steve Hodel, determines that Rodney Alcala is the main suspect. But Rodney has bounced out of the uh, La La Land already. Tala will recover physically, then she'll move out of town with her parents down to Mexico. Shortly after the attack, Rodney gets accepted, to NYU, to New York University's School of the Arts undergraduate program under the alias of John Berger, who he may uh, have hurt or killed over the course of the following, you know, few years unknown. July of 1969, about to turn 26, Rodney goes to work uh, as an arts and drama counselor at a summer camp in George Mills, New Hampshire, still living under the alias of John Berger. Little does fellow camp counselors or anyone else who worked at or attended the camp know that Mr. Berger, the drama teacher, was wanted for the rape and attempted murder of an eight-year-old back in L.A. He would work at this camp for three consecutive summers, taking God knows how many fucking creepy pics of teen girls. And he'd go to NYU and study film during the school year. Uh, He would even study under fellow sexual predator, director Roman Polanski, for a while. After leaving almost all his belongings in California, when he fled, Alkal had bought himself a newer model, Helena Camera. He had an absolute blast whenever he was at camp on the edge of Lake Sunapee. Uh, taking pics of teenage girls doing cartwheels and tight-fitting shorts or sitting while wearing their skirts. Alcala, uh, you know, is a developing sexual sadist and he's in his depraved element, I'm sure building lots of horrific fantasies. Meanwhile, 3,000 miles away, Detective Steve Hodel has finally persuaded his superiors to take more drastic action to apprehend the perpetrator, Rodney Alcala, and get justice for Tali Shapiro. Uh, She had survived, but it had taken more than nine months for her to fully recover from her injuries. She was in a coma for 32 days. Steve Hodel exhausted all had exhausted all his leads. Now it's time to take his search for Rodney to the next level, and he helped get Rodney onto the FBI's ten most wanted list. And this will lead to his capture. In June of 1971, Rodney graduates from NIU. He begins his third summer working at the arts and drama camp in George Mills, New Hampshire. On the evening of June 23rd, 1971, Alcala finds out about that FBI list. He had just finished watching the latest episode of The Brady Bunch in his Manhattan loft. When a police news flash is aired live on national television and there he is. They broadcast a photo of his face in grainy black and white and he is fucking furious. He felt it was unfair. Of course he did. He's a sociopath. Uh, As if if what he did wasn't actually that bad. Now he decides to go do something that night that'll make him worthy of uh, that level of law enforcement interest. He heads out to some clubs and discos in Manhattan armed with his camera and a lot of evil ideas while ordering a beer at a bar. Alcala spots an attractive, dark-haired young woman sitting by herself, sipping on what appeared to be a martini. She's wearing a form-fitting pastel pink blouse, a pair of tight bell-bottom jeans. She's gorgeous. He estimates her to be in her early 20s. And he asks to join her for a drink, and she accepts. Her name is Cornelia Crilly. 23 years old, she was a flight attendant for TSA, Trans World Airlines, which was a uh, very prestigious and glamorous job at that time. Alcala introduces himself as a fashion photographer Ends up talking her into letting him come over to her apartment for some drinks and some photos. once the two of them are alone, things, of course, got brutal. One biographer's recreation of what may have happened based on the crime scene was Rodney demanding that she take her clothes off for some pictures. When she refuses, goes for her phone to try and call police, he attacks her. He punched her in the face, briefly knocks her unconscious, hauls her into the bedroom where he tears off her blouse, leather sandals, jeans, and underwear... After tying her up with some nylon ropes he'd found, stuffs her panties deep into her mouth, slaps her back awake. When she comes to, she's naked, bound on the floor, and Alcala is violently raping her. He took a pair of nylon stockings, strangled her again, then after she is dead, continues to have sex with her corpse. Then he goes home that night, goes back to his job, at a summer camp, Uh, you know, the summer camp the next day, like, uh, what he had done was no fucking big deal. Next day, June 24th, 1971, dead body of Cornelia is found in her apartment in the Yorkville area of Manhattan and police unfortunately have no suspects over a month later early august two of the teen girl campers at the george mill summer camp recognize their counselor john berger when they see his picture at the fbi uh, on an fbi top 10 list at the local post office they report this to the camp director who confirms that the man on the poster is indeed his employee and immediately he calls the fbi then on august 11 1971 fbi agents arrive at the camp arrest john slash rodney with the help of fingerprint evidence He's quickly extradited back to Los Angeles where Detective Hodel, who pushed to get him on that list right, now gets a chance to speak to him. As Hodel would later say, I asked him, so tell me about the Tali Shapiro incident. And basically he says, oh, I want to forget about all that. He said, I don't want to talk about things that Rodney Alcala did. As if Rodney was a different person. And then Hodel, you know, unfortunately, had to let him go. Uh, You know, fair enough, Rodney. I I mean, John, uh, sorry. Uh, I just wanted to ask you some questions. But if uh, Rodney doesn't want to talk about it. I don't think there's anything we can do. You know, I mean, I get it. You changed your name. So we can't technically prosecute you for anything that Rodney did, can we? I mean, you're not really Rodney anymore. It's, it's genius what you've just done. Uh, hey, do us a favor, will you? Uh, please don't tell any other dirtbags, no disrespect, uh, about this particular loophole, right? We don't want everyone to uh, realize that if you just change your name, start calling yourself something else, you legally can't get in any trouble for anything you did when you had the old name. Uh, no, of course, Odell does not let him go. Uh, that was so fucking weird for Rodney just to say that though. It's almost like he's crazy or something. Like he arrogantly thinks he's uh, a lot smarter than uh, the rest of us because his brain doesn't work right. Uh, Rodney, unfortunately, won't get in nearly as much trouble as he should have over what he did. By the time, uh, the, the, you know, they capture Rodney and bring him back. Tali and her family, they've been down to Mexico for a little while now, and they have no intention of coming back for a trial and forcing young Tali to rel- relive the terror of her attack. So with Tali unavailable for trial... I don't totally understand this, um, why why she had to be there concerning what else they found. Uh, Prosecutors have no choice but to enter into a plea agreement with Rodney. According to sources, they have no choice. Uh, They reached their deal between August 1971 and May of 1972. States he'll plead guilty to child molestation, but not to rape and not to attempted murder. Another dirtbag gets let off easy. So for the crime of child molestation, Rodney receives interdeterminate or indeterminate, excuse me, sentencing, which was popular at the time. We've talked about indeterminate sentencing before some of the true crime episodes. It means that the judge is allowed to set a range of time instead of a specific amount of time, in this case, anywhere from one to 10 years with the option of parole, which means that a parole board, not a judge, will determine how much time an inmate spends in prison. So that's, that's fucking cool. So maybe just a year for kidnapping, brutally raping, and attempting to murder an eight-year-old girl. Uh, a lot of states in the U.S. Uh, still lean on indeterminate sentencing. When first introduced in the U.S. in the 1930s, this flexible manner of sentencing was supposed to help solve the problem of prison overcrowding, because we've been dealing with that shit for a long time, and also emphasize rehabilitation, so offenders who seem like they've been rehabilitated can return to society early. Rodney uh, should have been locked up for life, but was not. Uh, Less than three years later, he charmed the person who had the keys to his release just like he charmed his victims. August 1974, the state psychiatrist determines that now 31-year-old Rodney has considerably improved during his incarceration, and he's released on parole with the stipulation that he stopped talking about taking nudie pics of his mommy. It was all I wanted to talk about in prison. What kind of outfits he was going to get her to wear? What positions she was going to pose in? What portal he was going to make sure she, she got published in? Oh, sorry. No, no, he was, uh, he was released on parole with the stipulation that he has to register as a sex offender with the Monterey park police department. His final statement during his parole hearing was at the time of the horrible crime, my judgment was impaired by the effect of drugs. And I now deeply regret the pain and suffering I've caused to Tali Shapiro and her family. Get the fuck out of here. How are people so fucking dumb? Uh, that long, like a parole board. Are you kidding me? Fucking drugs? They're going to blame, blame drugs on that? They should have kept him locked him up for just being stupid enough to blame kidnapping and raping and trying to kill an eight-year-old on drugs. There's not a drug that's going to make you do something like that unless you are just inherently fucked up. You wanted to do that shit already and then it came out under drugs. Also, Rodney was never a big drug user. Mostly just weed. Uh, but that was all it took, you know, to uh, convince these uh, people to let him go free. Once Alcala was released, he goes back to live with his mom, where he has the use of her car as well as his own bedroom with a private entrance. You know, because uh, why, why should mom keep an eye on him? What, what has he done? What, bad, what terrible thing has he done? Uh, he also lands a job within two weeks of his release with a local entertainment magazine. He's out taking photos of stores in South LA, right, the day after he lands that job. Letter from the parole board to the magazine said he was fully rehabilitated. And well-mannered. Good job, parole board. Awesome work. Uh, Very quickly, he returns to rape and murder. Uh, Two months later, October 13th, 1974, Alcala pulls into a shopping mall in Huntington Beach where he sees a 13-year-old girl waiting for the school bus. Her jeans are faded. The letter's uh, HBH, Huntington Beach High, embroidered in royal blue sweaters on the back of her white sweater. Rodney uh, notices the girl's name is written on her books, calls out to her, Hey, Julie. When her head turns, he offers to take her to school. At first she doesn't an answer, then he offers to show her some cool pics. He's a professional photographer. He can make her a star, and she accepts. Once she's in the car, he tells her that his name is John Ronald. Uh, so that's a interesting choice. He's got, uh, is, there, is there a lot of Ronald's last name? His name is John Thomas. His name is John Daniel. I guess maybe. Uh, a few minutes into the drive, though, she notices they're driving right past her school. Rodney's not stopping. She panics. Of course she does. Starts to scream, tries to throw herself out of the car, but Rodney grabs her. Drives her to a secluded location along the bluffs on Huntington Beach. Takes out a joint, forces her to smoke it. She never smoked before. Drops the joint on purpose to try and, uh, you know, uh, give her time to make a break for it. But he grabs her, now forcibly kisses her. Luckily, when this is happening, a park ranger passing by smells the pot. Goes over to the pair to check it out. This might be the only time in history that an officer trying to bust someone over pot was actually a good thing to do. Rodney claims that he and Julie were just hiking, taking a break, but then Julie quickly shouts out uh, that she'd been forced to go with him. He'd kidnapped her, and she wants to go home. The ranger puts both of them in a squad car now, drives them to the police station. Once there, Rodney blames the pot on Julie, saying it was her drugs, and that she was the one who suggested they go to the bluff to smoke it. You know, what am I supposed to do? A 13-year-old girl wants me to go smoke some pot, take her to a secluded location. I mean, I, I kind of have to do it. And officers immediately let him go. And they beat Julie to death for being a no-good, pot-smoking commie hippie. Or the police run background checks on them both. And there's nothing on Julie. She's a fucking kid. 13-year-old with no criminal record. Alcala they find out, is a parolee. Guy who'd already molested another underage girl. He'd actually raped and almost killed her, but molestation is what shows up on his record. Thanks to that fucking plea deal. Uh, Rodney now booked on several criminal counts, including sale of pot, kidnapping, violating parole. And then that dirty motherfucker's taken to jail how many other girls he had done something similar to or worse before this arrest october 26 1974 rodney found guilty of violating parole and providing drugs to a minor fucking snake somehow got off on the kidnapping charge and he gets sent to prison and he won't stay uh, that long this time either he'll be incarcerated until june of 1977 at the california department of corrections first in chino then at the uh, men's colony in san luis obispo on june 16 1977 the age of 33 Rodney released on parole after being pronounced uh, re-reformed due to improvement programs. He completed while in prison. He's double reformed. Holy shit. He is so good now. He's so reformed. He is actually safer than someone uh, who's never got caught for raping and almost killing one kid and then kidnapping another. He was definitely going to, you know, try and fucking rape and kill. Uh, Yay, sex offender rehabilitation. It always works. What a joke. What a colossal waste of everyone's time. Uh, Rodney's now required to report to a parole officer weekly, but he won't. In the summer of 1977, his parole officer makes the unusual decision to let Rodney, you know, right? Fucking dirtbag, flight risk, uh, go to New York City so he can see family, as he claims, even though he has no family in New York City. Uh, Many women in New York City are currently living in fear of another serial killer already, David Berkowitz, son of Sam. He'd kill six, wound seven, most of them young women, all outside uh, of two uh, and... uh, and all outside of two stabbing victims uh, were attacked in nineteen who were who were attacked nineteen seventy-five uh, were wounded or killed between July of nineteen seventy-six and july thirty-first, nineteen seventy-seven. Jesus Christ, that's what I was trying to say. Is that uh, it was heating up when he gets out there. Most young women in the area, well aware of the murders and more on edge than normal. Despite this, Rodney quickly worms his way into the life of one young woman, Ellen Jane uh Hover. Ellen just 23. I just graduated from Beaver College in Glensdale, Pennsylvania, where she'd majored in biology, minored in music. She lived at 686 Third Avenue in a quaint apartment in Manhattan, a stone's throw from the Empire State Building. She was a socialite, the daughter of the owner of a popular Hollywood nightclub, Ciro's, goddaughter of both Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr., Rat Packers. And on July 13th, 1977, a friend of hers sees her talking to a tall guy with dark ponytail, uh, with a dark ponytail just outside of her apartment. She had no idea uh, who he was, but he charmed her into getting a lunch date. When a friend asked her about him, Ellen replied he was, he was a charming photographer. And that was the truth. Unfortunately, he was uh, so much more than that. July 15th was the day of Ellen's date with Rodney. That morning, she goes to the library, then back to her apartment in time to meet him for lunch. And then she is never seen again by any friends and family, at least not alive. She never showed up later that night for a planned dinner date, never phoned her parents back, although she promised to, very out of character. The next day, July 16th, Ellen's parents decide to notify the police after not hearing from their daughter for a full, you know, 24 hours. Everyone's very worried, as they should be. Police then head to her apartment where they find no signs of a break-in. Then they gain access to, uh, um, uh, sorry. (laughs) They find, uh, yeah, no signs of a break-in. The only clue to her disappearance, detective noticed that Hover's diary was open to July 15th with a line scribbled in it that read, John Berger, photographer. Well-connected, worried about their daughter, Ellen's family hires a private detective to try and locate this mysterious John Berger. They even put up a $100,000 reward for anyone who knew their daughter's whereabouts. Had flyers posted all around the city. Weeks go by, though, no leads. Later that month, the New York Post even ran a headline on the cover that read, Girl Missing, Fear Abduction. Many started to fear the son of Sam had gotten her. The police thought that Ellen might have uh, been his type. She was attractive, young white woman, long dark hair, look that seemed to be his preference. When he was conscious a few weeks later, though, investigators would quickly realize that Ellen, not one of his victims. Meanwhile, John Berger disappears from New York, heads back to La La Land by September of 1977. He's returned to L.A. He's gotten a job as a typesetter at the L.A. Times. While working in the Times, he will convince hundreds of young men and women that he's a professional fashion photographer. And he'll convince him to let him take uh, provocative photos of them for his portfolio. Who knows how many he also killed? An LA Times coworker later recalled that uh, Alcala shared his photos with numerous coworkers and no one seemed to uh, think to report him. This one coworker would say, I thought it was weird, but I was young. I didn't know anything. When I asked why he took the photos, he said their moms asked him to. I remember the girls were naked. (laughs) What the fuck? (sighs) Literally showing his coworkers child porn that he shot and claiming that their parents asked him to take it as if that made it okay. I know we talked about that earlier. Jesus Christ. It's like they were just uh, apparently too afraid of looking like a square to say how fucking disgusting that was. Thank God times have changed. Uh, his perverted portfolio also included spread after spread of fully nude teenage boys, also in sexually provocative poses, more arthouse shit, I guess, according to him. I wonder, I wonder if his old teacher, his old photography teacher, Roman Polanski, taught him how to best take nude photos of kids. Just six months earlier, Polanski had been arrested in Beverly Hills for drugging and raping 13-year-old Samantha Gailey after taking some artsy photos of her To avoid numerous additional charges, Polanski would plead guilty to unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor, and after serving 42 days in jail, he was supposed to be released for time served according to his plea deal. Uh, Then his attorney, after he gets out, thinks that the judge is going to toss out his plea deal, send him to 50 years in prison, so he gets out on bail, flees the country, uh, has been making movies from abroad ever since, living in France, Poland, and Switzerland. I wish that judge had put him away for 50 years. But instead, at the 75th Academy Awards in 2003, he won the Best Director Oscar for The Pianist. Yeah, fuck yeah, nice. Uh He was only finally kicked out of the Academy in 2018 for what he did in 1977, thanks to the Me Too movement. Why did it take that long? Because the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Scientists has been morally ba- fucking bankrupt for decades. Look at how celebrated Woody Allen's been. Forget about the sex crimes he's been accused of, like the one levied in August of 1992 when his adoptive daughter, Dylan Farrow, then only seven, said he sexually molested her in the home of his adopted mother, or her adopted mother, uh, actress Mia Farrow, Just look at another one of Mia's kids. Woody, in addition to having a biological child with Mia, had also adopted two other uh, other of Mia's kids. And in 1990, two years before the sex abuse allegation, Woody started a romantic relationship with another one of Mia's adopted children, Soon-Yoon Preven. Woody's kids adopted teenage sister. When soon Yi was a senior in high school, uh, Woody was a 56-year-old pervert. He started dating her, dating his kid's sister. Then he took nude photos of her when she was a freshman in college. Then he went on to receive an additional 23 Academy Award nominations, and five wins. Fuck yeah. Cool. That's cool. Sorry, no, I know uh, I got pulled a bit off course there, but I think all this does speak to how Hollywood uh, really can be Holly weird. And from everything I've researched over the past several years, it was especially weird in the 1970s when uh, Alcala was doing this shit. And it did make it easier for Alcala to do what he did because, uh, you know, some of the uh, sexual liberation of the counterculture revolution in the late 60s and 70s ran amok and it wasn't that unusual, I guess, for a grown ass man with a camera to approach, approach teen girls and teen boys and want to take artsy nude photos of them. October of 1977, 18 year old Jill Barcombe disappears now. Jill was born December 18th, 1958. Fifth child of 11 kids in her family. Grew up in Oneida, New York. We've been there before. Uh, was still living in the family home just prior to her disappearance. She dropped out of high school her senior year earlier that spring. Had a bit of a wild side, 1977, good year to party. She was a volunteering as a candy striper at the local hospital, hoping she'd uh, become a nurse someday. Then she abruptly, to her family at least, uh, uh, skipped out of town. In that October, she disappeared. Then a week later, she called her family to let them know she was okay. She told them she decided to drive to California with three of her friends, loved it there so much she decided to stay, and her friends had returned to New York without her. And then her family would never hear from her again. A few weeks later, early in the morning of November 10th, 1977, the West Los Angeles police received a call about a dead body in the Mulholland Drive area of L.A., close to Marlon Brando's house. The police parked near an area dense with brush and trees, soon came across a horrifying sight. This is fucking brutal. officer saw a female body on all fours, low to the ground, her knees bent, the tips of her toes on the ground, her inner thighs and knees pointing outward, had no panties on, her rear was spread wide, her face had been tucked so tightly against her breast it looked like her neck was broken, top of her head, touching the ground between her knees. Her right-hand fingers curled up only about three or four inches from her sliced open anus where blood pooled in the dirt below. Her blood-smeared light green sweater pulled up on her back. She had no stockings or shoes on. One pant leg tied around her neck. A large pointed rock that was blood-stained found in the pool of blood that encircled her head. The autopsy report listed the victim as female, uh, you know, four feet, 11 inches tall, weighing about 95 pounds. Most disturbingly, Almost all of her injuries had been inflicted while she was still alive. She was strangled with someone's hands, then with ligatures, then bashed on the head. The blows to the head appeared to be consistent with impacts from a rock, the bloody rock, you know, laying next to her. There were multiple causes of death, blunt force trauma to the head and neck, either of which could have killed her. So multiple possible causes of death and uh, strangulation as a contributing cause. Her anus was torn. The area was bruised. So she was still alive when those injuries occurred. Uh, Two contusions of the anus itself just below the vagina indicated that while she was being sodomized, the perpetrator's fingernails likely dug into her skin. Her pubic hair was singed up the left side, showing that a flaming instrument had been placed between her legs and into her vaginal area. Fuck. That is some toy box killer, Kansas City butcher level shit. She had been savagely sexually tortured. Sperm found in both her vagina and her anus. Corner speculated that she hadn't walked to where she was found because there was no bare footprints. There was also blood smears from the killer's hands found on her legs, showing how he'd moved them to make his disgusting display. So whoever had done this, had taken her from another location, then posed her, right, deliberately carried her from someplace else and made her look as horrifying as possible uh, for the poor people who would find her. Her body had been staged, right? And this elaborate and horrific staging will be one of Rodney's criminal signatures. This type of staging often called posing. Jack the Ripper, Time Suck bonus episode 21, sometimes posed his victims' nude bodies with their legs spread apart to shock onlookers and the police in Victorian England. Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, subject to Time Suck episode 212, posed some of his victims to shock those who discovered their bodies. In most cases, DeSalvo left his victims with their genitals exposed towards the door. After murdering his sixth victim, 67-year-old Jane Sullivan, DeSalvo left her body in a bathtub in a kneeling position with her bare buttocks exposed, Investigators determined the victim had been murdered in another room, then taken to the bathroom for posing. Pretty rare for a serial killer to do this, to want to take the time to put on a little show of sorts for whoever discovers the body. More often, the intended audience, uh, or sorry, most often uh, with posing, the intended audience seems to be law enforcement. Similar to killers taunting authorities with letters to the media or to the police themselves, mocking their inability to catch them, posing might point to an especially arrogant killer who thinks they can not only just get away with murder, they can also flaunt the extreme brutality of their crimes and torment the uh, law enforcement. Much more often with serial killers, victims' bodies are left wherever they've died, the killer having quickly fled the scene in a desperate attempt to get away with it. Sometimes, mostly early on in their sprees, uh, they're shocked at what they've done and want to remove themselves from the location where they lost control as fast as possible. Other times, bodies are dumped in a remote hidden location where the killer may return later to further sexually desecrate the body. Or the bodies kept in or very near the killer's home where they uh, can then return to it again and again for dark sexual satisfaction. Posing probably the most rare scenario. Posing uh, mostly associated, at least uh, recently it seems, based on what comes up first with a quick internet search, with Washington State serial killer, George Russell, a.k.a. the Charma Charmer, excuse me, have not covered him yet. Uh, he killed in 1990. One of his victims found with her arms and legs crossed as if put into a, a coffin. Uh, her eye had been covered with a plastic top. Uh, Another victim found with a sex toy shoved down her throat in the book, More Joy of Sex, placed in her left hand. A fingerprint match to a juvenile arrest record confirmed that this victim of Rodney's was Jill Barcombe. Jill laid to rest Wednesday, November 16th, 1977, in St. Patrick's Cemetery back in Oneida. She received a closed casket service due to the severe disfiguration of her face and body. Her parents did not want any of the other children or fucking anyone to see what Rodney had done to her. Meanwhile, investigators have no idea this is Rodney's work. They have no suspects. The lead detective on this case was LAPD officer Philip Finatter, who later would be uh, the lead detective of the O.J. Simpson case. And he was the one who made the call or helped make the call to look into the Hillside Stranglers in this one, uh, assuming they had something to do with this. So, I mean, they had no definitive suspects, but I guess he suspected the Hillside Stranglers. Once again, another serial killer roaming the same area, committing the same basic type of crime uh, as Rodney, helps throw police off of his tracks. Officers knew that Jill's friend, Judith Miller, had been a victim of the Hillside Strangler. Judith's body had been found October 31st, 1977. Uh, she was only 15. How fucking crazy is that? These two women, these two, uh, you know, friends who had just met, both killed by serial killers, by different serial killers active in the same area at the same time. Law enforcement initially assumed Jill was another Strangler victim. On December 14th, 1977, LAPD receives a call from the FBI. They're investigating the disappearance of Ellen Hoover. Uh, which had taken place about five months early in New York City, right? Still not having found her remains uh, or her. They don't know for sure if she's dead at this point. The FBI looking for a man known as John Berger because his name is in her uh, dry diary on the last day she's seen. And they discover that John Berger is an alias for Rodney Alcala, who's now living back in LA. And the LAPD tracked down Rodney easily. The records showed that he'd been in jail twice for a rough, uh, total of roughly five years. Now he's on parole working at the LA Times. So the LAPD head over to the Times find Rodney, bring him in for questioning. When they ask him about uh, Ellen, uh, they're surprised. Not only did he admit to knowing her, he admitted to being with her on the day she disappeared. He said that the two of them were friends and that they would uh, go out and take pics uh, together sometimes. He said that that was what they did on the day she disappeared. After he walked to her apartment, uh, or afterwards, he walked her to her apartment and left her at her front door. Was he assuming he was so charming they would just believe him or just that there was no evidence against him at this point and he didn't have to worry about it? Uh, the police asked him to take a polygraph test. He said no. And since they couldn't force him to take it and had no evidence of a body uh, you know, so, uh, or of a murder weapon, if there was a murder, they had no choice but to release him now, even though they strongly assumed he had done something to her and had you know, obviously something to do with her disappearance. Slippery son of a bitch, for the moment at least, has uh, again avoided being thrown behind bars. Uh, just two days later, Southern California police make another horrifying discovery. The body of Georgia Wickstead 27-year-old woman is found in her Malibu apartment after she fails to pick up a coworker for work. Georgia was a nurse at the Sentinella Hospital in Inglewood, usually working the 3 p.m. to 11:30 p.m. swing shift. After work on December 15th, Georgia some friends had gone out to celebrate a friend's birthday at a bar. One of the men they met and uh, flirted with a bit was Rodney Alcala. And he would follow them when they left the bar, and he would follow Georgia all the way to her house. Afterwards, Georgia dropped off her friend, uh, Barbara Gale, at her Santa Monica home. Before getting out of the car, Barbara asked Georgia if she could catch a ride to work the next day at 2.30 in the afternoon. Her motorcycle had broken down. A uh, nurse who drives a motorcycle? Hail hey, Lucifina. Uh, Barbara sounds badass. Georgia agreed, since they both worked the same shift. But then the next afternoon, Georgia never shows up to take Barbara to work. Uh, after calling Georgia's house several times, getting no answer, Barbara takes a cab. Uh, and then she's worried when George doesn't show up to her shift, so she quickly decides to call the police. I like everything about Barbara. Uh, police officers soon enter George's apartment complex, approach her door. Right away, an officer notices that her front window screen had been removed and propped up against an outside wall. Not good. There was also a box under the window, like someone had used it to boost themselves in from the outside. Really not good. The officer knocks on the door. No one answers, but the door is unlocked. Two officers then quickly enter, and a pungent smell hits them right away. It's over 100 degrees inside. Also dark. All the blinds are closed. The lights aren't working. So they have to use their flashlights to look around. And within two minutes, a beam of light illuminates what looks like a dead body. They secure the apartment and call in a homicide unit. Over the next hour or so, a team of 15 different homicide investigators arrives at the apartment, finds Georgia, uh, they find Georgia laying on her back on the floor with her knees facing outwards, creating a diamond shape, more horrific posing, more graphic imagery of sexual violence coming up directly. There was blood between Georgia's legs. A lot of it. Her pantyhose had been knotted several times around her neck, her bedsheets, pillows, bedspread, all laying on the floor beside her, all blood-soaked, and a claw hammer lay about two feet away, also covered in blood. The whole apartment was a bloodbath. There was blood spattered on the railings of the bed, as well as all over the bedroom walls. In the bathroom, blood all over the toilet. It seemed like there was far too much blood to have come out of just one person, especially a small woman. In the kitchen, there was a bloody towel and soap left in the sink, both of which indicated the killer had cleaned himself up before leaving. The autopsy report listed that Georgia had sustained massive head and facial trauma, numerous skull fractures and claw-like lacerations across her face and skull. There were cut marks all over her neck as well as broken bones inside of her neck and lower jaw, which had then uh, pierced all the way through the back of her neck. So much fucking violence, so much aggression. She also had a variety of lacerations on the lips of her vagina and labia. He had bit her genitals hard enough to tear apart some of the tissue. The coroner would determine that almost all of these injuries had been inflicted upon her while she was still alive. Once again, she'd been sexually tortured. This motherfucker is brutal. Turns into a demon when he attacks. Uh, Reveals the real Rodney that's always lurking behind his eyes. The ligature marks on the neck, consistent with strangulation. The tears in the vaginal wall, consistent with forced forced penetration by an object. She'd been struck in the head with that claw hammer over and over again. But for the first series of blows, it seemed not hard enough to be killed almost as if the killer wanted her to suffer tremendously before she died. She had been literally tortured to death. The author of one of his biographies also asserted that Rodney took, uh, likely took photos of Georgia in the midst of all this. Perhaps he took photos uh, you know, during his kills in the midst of uh, all of the torture you know, with all these different women. Investigators had no idea how long Georgia's punishment went on for. Did he strangle her over and over before he let her die? Did he alternate between hitting her on the head with a hammer and forcibly penetrating her with the hammer as well? Sperm found in her vagina, anus, and mouth. And when they tested blood in the apartment, they found two blood types. Some of the killer's blood is there too. She's either hurt him while trying to defend herself or he'd hurt himself when he went completely fucking demonic and feral in his attacks. This blood and sperm, huge evidence, very important smoking gun evidence in 2022, enter that into a digital database. The guy with two prior prison stints going to pop up. They're going to fucking find this guy and throw him in prison. Unfortunately, that's not reality in 1977. In the late forties, only 30 years earlier, scientists barely beginning to truly understand how DNA contained discrete units of hereditary information. X-rays of DNA strands came in 1952 when Rosalind Franklin, able to produce two sets of high resolution photographs of DNA fibers and found the DNA had a uh, double helix structure. Then it wouldn't be until 1977 that Frederick Sanger, Cambridge graduate started developing rapid DNA sequencing techniques. Wasn't until the 1980s, that labs were beginning to use DNA to establish paternity in question cases. And it wouldn't be until 1986 that DNA would be used in a murder case. Colin Pitchfork, fucking Mr. Pitchfork, what a name, of uh, Leicestershire, not Shire, not Hobbits, England, uh, would be convicted of raping and strangling two 15-year-old schoolgirls to death, the first in 1983, the second in 1986. He'd been convicted of indecent exposure prior to those murders, right? Whipped his fucking dick out in front of some girls in public. His boss at the time of his arrest said that he couldn't leave female coworkers alone, And then that pile of shit, you know, everyone knew was a fucking perv dirtbag, already found guilty of two rapes and murders, uh, and then later released from prison uh, in 2021 at the age of 61. Uh, And then guess what? He immediately started approaching women and creeping them the fuck out. Weird. Who could have guessed he would do that? How about anyone with any common sense? But he's able to trick prison officials and psychologists into thinking he's totally rehabilitated. I feel like too many psychologists and psychiatrists have... uh, too much fucking ego when it comes to their ability to uh, rehabilitate these perverts. Nope, you fucking can't. They just trick you. Uh, he violated a condition of his parole, went back to prison. Um, so, you know, he's in prison uh, now, I believe, but eligible to be released any day. When the fuck is the world going to understand? You cannot rehabilitate sexual predators like this. And right? if we're not going to execute them, can we at least sentence him to life in prison with no possibility of parole? And then while in prison, they have to work. They have to do something that's profitable. And then that profit goes to either their victims, their victims' families, or to charities, to nonprofits aligned with helping the victims of sex offenders. And if they refuse to work, then we should definitely be able to kill them. Brutally. Fuck them. Uh, Anyway, after government started maintaining databases of DNA profiles, the incentive for running unknown samples would skyrocket, right? Violent crimes such as sexual assault, homicide, have a high degree of repeat offenders, So once databases are established, you know, coming up with a match becomes more and more likely, but not in Rodney Alcala's time. And he cleaned up fingerprints from this crime scene, right? That technology or that technology, excuse me, was available, but he had erased that evidence. March of 1978, uh, Rodney spends a brief period in jail when some weeds found in his home. The way it was found, I don't know, might surprise you. Rodney was interviewed uh, by police, not for any of the murders or attacks that he had committed, but because the Hillside Strangler Task Force was interviewing any and all registered sex offenders in the area. After a long interview, they decide he's not the killer they're looking for, but they do book him from some marijuana the idiot had left out on his fucking coffee table. Jesus, dude. Take a second to hide the weed before walking police into your home. I don't know, maybe he was stoned when they showed up. Uh, Days after Alcala was released after serving a few months in jail, Charlotte Lamb, 32-year-old legal secretary from Santa Monica, becomes his next victim. Friday, June 23rd, 8 p.m., uh, She called her old college friend, James uh, Ferracci, to ask him if he would like to go to a new club that had just opened in Santa Monica. But James, he was tired. He wanted a quiet night in. He declined. Charlotte decides to go out anyway, and she meets Rodney. And you can surmise how the rest of her night went. The next day on June 24th, Charlotte's Dotson, now parked illegally behind the new club, receives the first of two parking tickets. She receives a second on the 26th when the car is still there. By that time, her family and friends, very concerned about her, June 26th was Charlotte's birthday. Friends and family members uh, tried calling her that day to wish her happy birthday. No one obviously gets a hold of her. Two days later, June 28th, responding to a phone call from Charlotte's sister that she'd now been missing for several days, Detective Richard Plasser from Homicide in Santa Monica went to Charlotte's apartment. Knocked on her door. When no one responded, asked the apartment building manager to let him in so that he could do a wellness check. Inside, he finds zero clues as to what may have happened to her. The apartment's neat, well-kept. Everything's in its place. TV guide in the front room coffee table shows the page uh, turned to June 23rd. Nobody could explain why she hadn't returned from the new nightclub, why she'd left her Dotson parked behind the club. Now let's back up to June 24th, the day after Charlotte had went alone to that club in Santa Monica. That morning, a man named Zaffir Shaw made the mistake of going down to do his own laundry. Zephyr was a tenant in an apartment building in El Segundo. He went to the laundry room in the basement to do some washing, saw what looked like a naked woman lying on the floor, a dead naked woman immediately ran to the manager's uh, manager's office to tell him. The apartment manager and his wife run down to the laundry room, confirm that, yes, that's a dead body, call the police. Like the three others before him, Detective William Gale arrived at the apartment to find the body of a woman who had been posed after death. She lay splayed in a pool of blood, uh, you know, on the laundry room floor. It was a shoelace tied around her neck. The shoe was still attached to the lace. It was hanging by the side of her face, her arms placed behind her back, far enough that it seemed to prop up her breasts for display. Her legs spread wide, her genitals facing the front door to the laundry room so that whoever came in would have no choice but to see the grizzly sight. The medical examiner's report would reveal the woman had received massive trauma to both her head and face. The shoelace was so forcefully tightened that the cartilage around her voice box and thyroid was fractured and blood vessels in her eyes had ruptured. There were also deep bite marks on the right side of her neck, along with abrasions above her left breast and right shoulder. Hemorrhaging around the anal rim indicated she'd suffered blunt force trauma from forceful, uh, forceful penetration, either a penis or another object. Once again, most of the injuries had been inflicted while she was still alive. Also appeared she'd been strangled numerous times, possibly choked with the killer's hands initially. Ultimately, the cause of her death was strangulation from that shoelace. Who knows how many times she repeated rounds of rape and torture and strangulation before she died. Much like with the other victims, an abundance of DNA evidence, right, sperm. Uh, but again, 1978. Wasn't much forensics could do with it. When the detectives started to ask questions to the manager, other tenants who lived in the apartment uh, building, they soon discovered that not only did this woman not live in the building, nobody recognized her. A few days after being initially labeled a Jane Doe, it would be determined that this is the murdered body of Charlotte Lamb. And within days, another Alcala victim is found. The remains of, of Ellen Hoover, Found in North Terrytown in West Chester County, County, New York. Her skeletal remains discovered in a shallow grave on the Rockefeller estate. The remains confirmed to be uh, hovers by dental records. Two rings and an ankle bracelet found in the body also determined to belong to Ellen, right? We met her already, right? The goddaughter of uh, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. Disappeared in July of 77. Only clue to her disappearance, right? Was that diary entry, John Berger, photographer. Detectives figured out the John Berger alias of Rodney Alcala. They questioned him about her disappearance. He refused to take a lie detector test. They couldn't uh, arrest him because there was no body. Now there's a body. Detective Donald Task from a missing person squad in New York City discovers a body after a tip they received that Rodney liked to watch the sunsets from the cliffs above the Hudson River, just north of the city, took 24 visits to this area before they found a pair of women's panties and bra. Both thought to be Ellen's. 24. I fucking love how tenacious these officers were. Did not give up after 23 tries. That's commendable. After finding her bra and panties, they find her bones. Shortly after the news breaks that uh, Ellen uh, Hovers remains have been found, a young single woman calls the New York detectives to tell them that she had posed for pictures with a photographer named Rodney Alcala on the Rockefeller estate in almost the exact place Ellen's body had been found. Rodney now back on investigators radar. Clearly, while he's on their radar, he decides to make a national television appearance. And before we look at this super strange moment in history again, let's take a uh, mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep? Read a book? Play Fortnite? Call your mom? Take judo lessons? Finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash timesuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality in my experience is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just fifteen bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to, where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it, though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread, on top of the sugar from the jelly, made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the 1 gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H E-R-O.co. C-O. Thanks for listening to the sponsors who support this show. Everyone, uh, back now to Rodney's primetime TV debut. For most people, September 13th, 1978 was just an ordinary Wednesday. But for Cheryl Bradshaw, the bachelorette on the TV matchmaking show The Dating Game, uh, that day was uh, momentous. It was the day her episode would air across the country. She taped it two weeks earlier. We heard part of that episode earlier. Cheryl was introduced by host Jim Lang as a young lady who once earned a living massaging feet, but she quit when her boss suggested she work her way up. (laughs) Then she taught school in Phoenix, Arizona, and now she's here to educate our three bachelors in the art of more. That intro is so 1978, right? So cringy uh all right fellas listen up our single and ready to mingle lady of the day is used to being sexually harassed at work and she doesn't press charges (laughs) so put your groping gloves on uh get ready to poke and pinch uh dating game was super popular in 1978 american institution first ran from 1965 to 1974 uh ran in uh you know prime time for for much of that initial run and uh it was revised three times later. From 1978 to 1980, it aired as the all new dating game. And then it aired again from 1986, to 1989, and then once more from 1996 to 1999. Created by Chuck Barris, who also created the newlywed game and hosted the popular Gong Show, the dating game featured a single woman who would be given a choice of three batchers who she could talk with, uh, but not see as a divider separated them. She knew them as just Batcher One, Two, and Three. Host Jim Lang would keep the show running smoothly with his witty banter, uh, silly introductions, and gameplay. In order to make her choice, the woman would ask the contestants a series of questions. The questions were usually suggestive and quirky. Then during a short commercial break, the woman would have to quickly contemplate her decision based on the bachelor's responses to her questions. After she made her decision, she would initially meet the two men uh, that didn't make the cut. And after that, she would meet the bachelor. She chose find out where they were going to go on their dream date. In the end, the woman in the chosen bachelor would go on a date uh, to some uh, exotic locale Sometimes not so exotic, but sometimes uh, a date that was typically chaperoned. Bunch of famous people, one in the dating game. Uh, in the early 1970s, Michael Jackson appeared on the show. Uh, roles were reversed. Jackson asked questions and picked a date from three eligible bachelorettes. And by bachelorettes, I mean young boys. And by date, I mean sleepover. Ha! Oh, come on. Come on. Anybody? No? S- uh, slide whistle? Uh, before hitting it big on "Mammy Vice, Don Johnson was, uh, actually a bachelor and was not picked for a date. And then there was Rodney Alcala, right? Uh, who be, ended up becoming the show's most infamous contestant on the day, uh, September 13th, 1978 episode. He was introduced as bachelor number one, as we heard, a uh, successful photographer, right? Enjoyed skydiving, motorcycle riding in his spare time, though Cheryl couldn't see him yet. He was wearing a brown bell-bottom suit. Uh, had his feathered hair all teased out, smiling, big old smile as Jim Lang introduced him. Right? Bachelor number one, successful photographer, got his start when his father found him in his dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. Right? Uh uh, you know, you heard that and the rest. Cheryl's final question was Am I serving you for I'm serving you for dinner? You know, what are you called? What do you look like? That's when he said, I, I'm called the banana, I look really good. Uh has to be more descriptive. He just says, Peel me. Later, bachelor one later, Cheryl replies, giggling, in there, and then she does choose Rodney. Uh, according to her, because uh, I like bananas and I get it, Cheryl. <laughs> Lord, do I get it. That was not supposed to be that button. I'm going to keep that mistake in because that was really funny to me. <laughs> Just gets really dark. I was trying to do a little slide. Lord, do I get it. Everyone has to die now. No. Very different tone that button sets. Uh, Cheryl and Rodney met at the end of the episode. Rodney kissed Cheryl in cheek. They were awarded tennis lessons complete with outfits. A trip to the Magic Mountain theme park. But the date never happened. Uh, Bradshaw called the show's office shortly after filming. Tells the contestant coordinator, Ellen Metzger, that she doesn't want to go. She will not go. According to Metzger, Cheryl says that there's no way she's going to go on a date with Rodney. Immediately after their episode wraps backstage, he creeps her the fuck out. She later told the Sydney Telegraph in 2012, I started to feel ill. He was acting really creepy. I turned down his offer. I did not want to see him again. Another one of the episode's Bachelors, actor Jed Mills, said to LA Weekly that Rodney was kind of quiet. I remember him because I told my brother about this one guy who was kind of good looking but kind of creepy. He was always looking down and not making eye contact. Some true crime writers would later speculate that the rejection uh, that he uh, faced after this uh, taping pushed Rodney further into his terrible deeds. He was embarrassed. Rejection, uh, often incredibly difficult for serial killers, sociopaths to process, Uh, Like Rodney, they tend to consider themselves superhumans, predators, more powerful than their prey. Sadly, the exposure Rodney receives in the dating game uh, will not bring him down. It'll just give him the the moniker, right, after he's caught of the dating game killer. Five months after his episode on the dating game airs, February 13th, 1979, Monique Hoyt, a 15-year-old girl, is hitchhiking in downtown Pasadena. Seemingly nice man, pulls up beside her, asks her if she wants to pose for some nude fine photography. Uh, he said he'd pay her $1,000. He said she wouldn't be doing anything crazy. Just some light bondage stuff with his mommy. He said she'd uh, only have to take her top off while she spanked his nude mommy's bare bottom. And then maybe if the mood was right, he'd put the camera on a timer on a stand, take pics of her spanking his mommy's bare bottom while she, while she spanked uh, his bare bottom. And then, uh, you know, she called him a freak, ran away and never uh, met the true monster that Rodney was. No, I wish, I wish that could have happened. No, uh, Monique flattered and excited for the money. Poor kid had been homeless for a while now. Got into the car. Uh, When she saw that it was full of uh, photography equipment, she relaxed. He seemed legit. She told him her name. He said he was Rodney, right? Rodney Alcala. Didn't make up a name. Uh, He's 35 now. And he says uh, that he needed to go by his house to pick up some more equipment. Uh, By the time they get there, though, it's getting too dark to take photos. And they decide to spend the night at Rodney's house. And that night, Rodney would actually not be violent. The two of them, after Monique took a shower and changed, sat on his couch, drinking root beer, eating popcorn, they watched the Rocky Horror Picture Show on Betamax. It rented from a video store on Wilshire Boulevard the day before. Started kissing halfway through the movie. That led to consensual sex. Uh, technically, it led to statutory rape. Uh, since the age of consent in California was actually 18, but uh, she at least wanted to have sex with this fucking creep at this point. Next morning after Rodney made breakfast, pancakes, eggs, bacon, juice, Rodney and Monique drive out to the mountains outside of Banning in Riverside County, about 75 miles from LA, under the guise of going for a photo shoot. Is he actually going to play nice this time? No, of course not. He's a fucking sadistic sociopath. Uh, Rodney parked the car. The two walked into the forest for about 15 minutes. Rodney claimed he's looking for the perfect spot. And I'm sure he was, just not for what she thought was going to happen. Once he'd found it, Rodney began taking photos of Monique with all her clothes on, first asking her to pose in various positions. A few minutes into the photo shoot, he asked her to take off her top, take some more photos. Then he asked her to get completely naked. She agrees. She strips down. The camera bulb continuing to flash. Now he says he wants to take some goofy pictures of her. So he asked her to grab her t shirt, put it on, put, uh, pull it up over her face, hold it there. And as soon as she has the t shirt over her face, he fucking smashes her in the head with a tree branch. Sweet Rodney's gone. Uh, she's hit hard enough to be uh, knocked to the ground. T shirt falls off her face. Before she loses consciousness, she sees Rodney bending over her, holding the branch. When she comes to, uh, you know, a few seconds, few minutes later, she knows she has to stay calm. She'd been living on the streets for over a year now, had developed some survival instincts. She knew that uh, screaming, yelling, probably uh, going to anger the psycho enough for him to kill her. So she keeps her eyes closed for a while. She pretends she's passed out, but Rodney will not make this very easy to keep up. Holy shit. He comes over to her, begins to bite her on her genitals hard, works his way with his mouth down, uh, you know, across her breasts, uh, then penetrates her vaginally, uh, pulls over, pulls her over. I'm sorry, uh, penetrates her vaginally, pulls out, flips her over, starts to roughly sodomize her. She can't keep quiet any longer. Scream slips out. He quickly tells her to shut up, grabs her t-shirt, which he stuffs into her mouth. Now she tries to fight back. He responds by choking her with her own pair of jeans until she passes out again. When she regains consciousness, she doesn't know how long she's been out. She can't move. Her wrists and ankles are tied. She slowly opens one eye and sees something very unexpected. Rodney's mom. Uh no. Uh, Rodney's lying on the ground beside her, and he is crying. This fucking lunatic. She decides that she's going to take advantage of this, act friendly towards him, maybe gain his trust. This will work. Monique starts telling him uh, that she'd love to spend more time with him. She rolls over, touches him on the arm, asks him if he's okay, uh, as though he would, uh, you know, as uh, th- 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 though he's done a favor uh, by beating, raping, and strangling her. Uh, Hail Monique, how brave is she? How tough and quick thinking? Lucifina is beyond impressed. She's a fucking warrior. Then in another brilliant move, she tells him not to tell anyone what has just happened to her. Like she was the one who somehow seduced him inappropriately. She asks him if she can stay at his house and this all works. She's tricked that fucking psychopath. Rodney gets up, unties her wrist so she can uh, put her clothes back on. He actually apologizes for what he did, uh, blames it on his antisocial personality disorder. Then when they walk back to the car, or then they walk back to the car, he drives them down the mountain, stops at a gas station, says he has to use the men's room. She says she'll just wait for him in the car. Don't worry about it. He's so convinced that she's uh, into him, uh, cool with everything he's just done. This is how out of touch with reality this fucker is. He leaves her alone, goes and uses the men's room. Monique waits for him to disappear into the building. As soon as uh, the door shuts, she fucking books it, runs to a motel next to the gas station, starts screaming that someone needs to call the police. A man has just kidnapped and raped her. One motel guest calls 911. Another guest shows Monique to a room where she can hide until the police get there. Thank God for good Samaritans. Rodney, meanwhile, hears this commotion, takes off. I bet he was pissed. Right? I can't be- I can't believe she would lie to me. Oh that bitch! What did I ever do to her? Why would she want to hurt me like that? I thought we had a really good thing going. When the police come, uh, they take Monique back to the station where they listen to her story and her description of the man who attacked her. The police then show her a photo lineup of suspects that match her description. Immediately, she points to the photo of Rodney Alcala. The detectives now drive to Rodney's house where they find him sitting watching TV, Ask him about his past. He's calm. He tells them about his parole from his recent marijuana possession conviction. Uh, they ask him what he was doing earlier that day. Uh, he tells them he was busy getting his heart broken by a lying monster. No, he didn't say that. He was unable to give an alibi for not raping Monique. So they take him into custody, put him under arrest for rape. In his version of events, he said that she had agreed to be tied up and photographed in the nude, but then she seemed to have regrets and began to fight. So he stuffed a t-shirt in her mouth and choked her, you know, just so she'd stop screaming as if that's something you can legally do to people. Fuck, a few days later, he appears in front of a judge. Bail set at $10,000, which his mother pays. Trial date set for September. In the meantime, he'll be a free man and that will not be good. Uh, Hope Monique, by the way, alive and well and happy somewhere today. Her testimony will later give investigators and some juries some valuable and horrific insight into what kind of shit Rodney likely did to his murder victims, how he would toy with them, how unbelievably traumatic their final moments were. April of 1979, Rodney gives his two weeks notice to the LA Times, His last day of work, May 12, 1979. Uh, he actually didn't want to quit, but if he wouldn't have quit, he would have been fired. Colleague was married to an LAPD officer and everyone in the office knew what he'd been accused of. So I guess his coworkers were uh, they were cool earlier with the child porn, but now not with the rape accusation. So good to know there was some kind of sexual predator line that could be crossed with them. Early June of 1979, Rodney photographs his 17-year-old Monterey Park neighbor, Linda, also shows her pictures of uh, other naked women and children. It's just art. He's an artist. Uh, She was one of numerous underage girls. He would talk into photography, photographing nude that summer, women he probably didn't kill. Uh, He also claims to Linda that he is a member of Mensa. Largest, oldest, high IQ society in the world. Non-profit organization open to people who score at the 98th percentile or higher on standardized, supervised IQ or other approved intelligence tests. Guessing that's where a lot of the genius speculation around, you know, Alcala uh, came from. June 13th, 1979, he kills for the first time since getting arrested for raping Monique Hoyt. First time that we know of, anyway. uh, Early on the 13th, a 21-year-old woman named Jill Partineau gets a phone call from his sister, Didi who wanted to hear what her plans were for Jill's first date with the boy from school. She tells him he's taking her to a Dodgers game that evening. Uh, The game would end up being a good one. Dodgers win 9-8 over the St. Louis Cardinals. Jill was a huge Dodgers fan. I imagine had a great time. And then her evening would quickly spiral after the game into a fucking nightmare. Rodney had also gone to the game, spotted her, followed her home. Next morning, Jill's best friend, Kathy Bowman, wanted to hear from her, find out how her date went. Here's nothing. Kathy then heads to work, keeps calling Jill. No answer. Kathy calls Janet Jordan, a co-worker of Jill's, who decides to head over to Jill's place in Burbank, see what's going on. When she arrives, no one answers. She decides to call the police. Police show up and uncover another grisly sight. Another scene had been staged. Homicide detectives called in. Detective Gordon Bowers takes the call to investigate a dead body found at the apartment at 1921 Peyton Avenue. Bowers and his team... They uh, show up to find Janet Jordan screaming hysterically. Investigators first noticed that the outside window had been removed and the screen was cut. The light bulb outside of the apartment door had been unscrewed. Inside, they find a Dodgers baseball program on the table along with a receipt from the previous night and a purse. The living room had been tidied up neatly as was the bathroom. What they'd find in the bedroom was probably the reason they'd heard Janet scream. Dead body of a naked young woman lying on the bed face up. She'd been carefully posed again. Her legs spread wide open facing the entrance to the room propped up on pillows her face brutally battered she had suffered from severe trauma to her face including to her nose cheeks and teeth torn and knotted nylons lay beside her covered in blood along with the sheets a bedroom lamp had been placed so that the light created a spotlight on her mutilated and bloody vagina motherfucker this guy was a monster an electric blanket underneath her had his cord wound around her neck Autopsy stated that Jill had suffered extensive scalp hemorrhaging six inches from side to side with trauma so severe that she bled into the undersurface of her scalp. There was significant trauma to her head caused by either an object broader than a hammer or her head being slammed against a flatter object like the wall or headboard or a human fist. Knots tied in her nylons had created ligature marks on her neck, caused severe hemorrhaging through the area of her thyroid, voice box, and epiglottis. She'd been strangled so severely that small blood vessels in her eyes had ruptured. How many times had he strangled her until she was almost dead, only to bring her back to strangle her again? Her entire body covered in injuries, bruises on the tip of her tongue, bleeding inside of her mouth, injuries on the sides of her mouth. Looked like they might have come from extremely aggressive, abusive, forced oral sex. She had uh, deep scratches around both breasts, tooth marks, puncture wounds around her right breast, more puncture wounds below the left nipple, cuts on the left side of the breast. So much sexual torture. They weren't able to determine exactly what objects he had used and how. It was all so savage. Deep wounds to her vaginal and rectal areas. And like so many other victims, the coroner concluded most of her injuries had been afflicted while she was still alive. Once again, the dating game killer had sexually tortured another innocent young woman to death. Blood samples taken from the robe in the bathroom and uh, semen recovered in her mouth and vagina. After this murder, Rodney goes right back to hunting. Just five days later, June 19th, Tony Esparza, 15 years old, Joanne Merchland, 14 years old, the roller skating along the sidewalk in Huntington Beach, strange man approaches him, drives up in his car, asks if they would mind if he took some pictures. Uh, first, the girls look at each other, laugh without answering. Then he says there's a prize for whoever takes the best photo. They notice that the man has a nice camera on his neck and that his car is full of lots of camera equipment. His mom's in the back seat too. Uh, you know, dressed uh, like a lot of moms were dressed at that time in a skin-tight latex bodysuit. Uh, only openings are for her mouth, breasts, and genitals. He's holding a giant bottom spanking paddle. This sets the girls at ease. They know he's okay. They get in the car. <laughs> Sorry. So stupid. I know. It's not true. Uh, Joanne tells the man uh, she thought it could be kind of neat to take some pics. Girls girl decided to uh, let him take some photos. Rodney gets out of the car, tells the girls that he wants them to skate towards him, then away from him, move their faces in different directions. Uh, you know, put their hands on their hips. When he finishes getting the shots he wants, he asks them for their phone number so he can call them and tell them if they won the prize. They say that their parents would not be okay with that. So he asks them, uh, just give me your address. You know, I'll contact you that way. They're like, nope. Uh, and then he uh, gets back in the car, starts it up, asks them if they want to go with him and go get fucked up. Let's have some fun. Smoke some weed, drink some uh, drink some booze. Joanne is now positive this guy's a creep. Smart kid speeds off uh, with, her, with her friend, you know, they're, and they're out of there. And then Rodney goes right back to hunting. Next day, June 20th, 1979, 15-year-old Lorraine Wirtz spending the day with her friend, Patty Elmendorf at Sunset Beach, just north of Huntington Beach. Uh, When Patty goes to use the bathroom, man approaches Lorraine, tells her he's in a photography class, trying to win a prize for best picture, wants to get her a a photo of her roller skating. Lorraine is flattered. She's excited. She'd always wanted to be a model, so she agrees. After taking a few quick pics, he starts asking her some questions. Does she have a boyfriend? Does she live close by? How old is she? Then, likely saving her life, Patty comes out of the bathroom, tells Rodney that she and Lori need to go home right away, and the two girls skate off. All these girls will later later become witnesses in a murder trial. Next girl Rodney approaches that same day uh, will not be so lucky. Rodney tells 12-year-old Robin Samso and her friend that he wants to take their pictures, and she is just 12. Young Robin was actually going to start her first day of work that day, answering phones at Stepping Stones Ballet Studio in exchange for lessons. She's been taking lessons there, uh, the year before, uh, since the year before, but now couldn't afford them anymore because her mom had been in a car accident. Before going into uh, work that day, she decided to play for a few hours with her friend Bridget Wilvert. Made it to Bridget's house around 11. Uh, Robin wearing a black bathing suit under white shorts, a t-shirt that read, here comes trouble. Shortly before 3 p.m., the girls left Bridget's apartment, headed across the PCH to the beach, right Pacific Coast Highway. Uh, Roddy, the man who approached them, was dressed weird, Bridget would later remember. She said he had a plaid shirt, slacks on, large camera hanging around his neck, not exactly dressed for the beach. Another person would see this fucking weirdo uh, at this time too, a city supervisor named Richard Stillett. Oh, Dick Stillett, meeting with an engineer. Uh, he noticed a man with a camera on his neck and, an amateur, uh, and as an amateur photographer, uh, Dick stopped to ask him a few questions. He was impressed with the man's 35mm camera, the nine-inch telephoto lens. Bridget and Robin uh, will agree to let this man take their pictures. But then after a few shots... Uh, the man leans in close to Robin, puts his hand on her knee, poses her uh, the way he wants her. Suddenly, out of nowhere, neighbor of pops up, a woman named Jackie Young. She asks Bridget if everything is okay. What are they up to? Uh, she's, of course, curious, concerned about this fucking creep. Confirming her suspicions, without a word, the man takes his camera, turns his head away, starts to walk away. Keeps looking back, th- back at them as he walks across the beach towards the road. The girls tell Jackie that the man just wanted to take some pics. Uh, And being an adult with at least some common sense, she tells them that is not a good idea. Stay away from that guy. Figuring that it was now time to get to work, Robin asks Bridget if she can borrow her bike. The Two head back to Bridget's house to get it. Bridget goes to the laundry room in her apartment building, which is where she kept her bicycle, brings it up for Robin. It's a boy's 24-inch Schwinn 10-speed. Bridget's mom then calls for her. She starts to run upstairs, tells Robin, see you tomorrow at school. Robin rides home where she picks up her leotard, heads to the ballet studio, and then disappears. Later that day, Robin's ballet teacher, Beverly Fleming, calls Robin's house to say she hadn't made it to class. Her family immediately calls 911, knowing how important the ballet studio was to her, especially on her first day of work. Uh, She was also supposed to be home between 4.30 and 5. Now it's a little after 5, uh, you know, she's late. A little after 5, about an hour from Huntington Beach, Dana Crappa, 25-year-old firefighter, is on her way to work when she sees a very suspicious sight. She's a dark-haired man dragging a young girl into the woods. Dana had driven up to the Santa Anita Canyon Road, or driven up Santa, Santa Anita Canyon Road uh, to get to the Forestry Base Camp, located in a remote section of hills in the San Gabriel Mountains. When she passed mile marker 11, she saw a 1976 Datsun F10 station wagon, that's Rodney's car, parked on the road, caught her eye. She approached the car, she had to slow down, the road was narrow, and uh, you know the Datsun was parked, uh, took up a lot of the uh, roadway the way it was parked. she looked more closely, she sees something frightening. Dark-haired man fucking dragging this blonde-haired girl into the woods. A man turns, stares right at her as she goes past, gives Dana the chills. But she does not stop to ask any questions. And then she also says fucking nothing to anyone about this this evening. Had she intervened, there's a good chance Robin would still be alive today. What's that phrase? See something, say something. Fucking say something. Do something. Save someone's life. Dana, as you're going to find out, one of the most, if not the most maddening side character that we've had, her journey in this suck just starting now, uh, it's going to get worse. It's fucking maddening. Well, maybe not worse. I mean, the way it started off, probably the worst, but it, but it continues for way longer than it should. Uh, that night, 11.05 PM nationwide broadcast goes on for Robin asking for any information on her whereabouts. Following day, June 21st, another frightening day for the Samso family, right? They're plunged into a nightmare. Forensic artist Marilyn Droz works with Robin's friend to draw a sketch of the man based on the girl's description. That evening, Dana Crappa uh, driving back to her barracks at the forestry base camp, passes the same Datsun she'd seen the day before. This time it's parked uh, a little bit different point on the road. And she drives by in a rearview mirror. She sees who she thought was the same man. Only this time he's covered in stains all over his clothes. Stains that might've been like dirt or, you know, maybe a lot of blood. Uh, she wonders, what was that guy doing out there all night? Why, why isn't the girl with him? But still, she says fucking nothing. She says nothing to anyone. Next day, June 22nd, the sketch drawn by Marilyn Droz, broadcast on the 5 p.m. news showing a youngish man with dark curly hair. June 24th, two days later, after hearing about this broadcast, Rodney chemically straightens his naturally curly hair. Next day, he's even more worried, It's not enough to change his appearance, buzzes his hair short. Uh, That day, June 25th, Dana Crappa once again returns to the place where she saw the man dragging a young girl into the woods Uh, She gets there about 7 p.m. She's disturbed, decides she wants to put her mind at rest, assure herself nothing bad happened there. Finds the opposite of assurance, right? When she arrives at the spot where she'd seen Rodney and Robin, she gets out of her truck with her flashlight, heads down the ravine. She finds nothing initially. Uh, She decides to search a little further and then is shocked to see the remains of a dead body. Reduced to blood and bones, lying on the ground in front of her. She turns around, runs back to her truck, drives to the barracks and says nothing to anyone yet again. She's a fucking idiot. June 26, 1979, Search for Robin is at a fever pitch. That day, Detective Art Droz, husband of the forensic artist Marilyn Droz, gets a phone call from Donald Haynes. If you remember that name, you have a good memory. Donald's the guy who followed Rodney Alcala when he picked up Tali Shapiro back in 1968. Donald thought that the drawing of the man who abducted Robin looked very similar to Alcala and that the guy had the same way of approaching girls by telling them he wanted to take their picture. Took a few uh, hours. I don't know why he said that about the photo, though. I mean, I don't think that's what he said to, uh, to Robin. But anyway, he seems it's the same guy. Uh, took a few hours for Detective Droz. Again, sources vary too much on some of these details. Uh, took a few hours for Detective Droz to get a photo of Alcala. He uh, thinks that, uh, you know, it's very similar to the composite sketch. He's ending his shift. He decides to go home, get some sleep. He's going to head out in the morning and talk to Rodney. Before he goes to bed, he sits down in the living room, turns on his TV, watches a rerun of The Dating Game. Yes, he now hears Jim Lang speak. You picked Bachelor number one. I want to tell you something about him. He's into skydiving. He's got a lot of nerve into motorcycling and a fine photographer. Say hello to Robert Alcala. Couldn't believe his ears. Then in front of the detective in full color, the same Rodney whose mugshot he had just been looking at. Now he's absolutely positive. Yep. That is the guy from the sketch. June 27th, after Rodney's episode, The Dating Game, uh, uh, airs, you know, re-airs the night before. Detective Art Drozd sends someone to pick up a copy of Rodney's episode from Chuck Barris Productions. As detectives continue to investigate the disappearance of Robin, they compile six photographs of similarly looking, uh, similar-looking long-haired men, show them to the people who have claimed to have seen Robin at the beach the day she disappeared. Literally all of them identify conclusively Rodney as the man they definitely saw with Robin. June 28th, detectives head to Rodney's address to look for vehicles used during the kidnapping. They see Rodney in a blue stage wagon before he abruptly makes a U-turn, speeds away, and loses the detectives the next day on june 29th dana how much should we hate her crappa returns to the site where she discovered human remains again after working in the same area early that day with a fellow fireman william popey Popekey. at the location she becomes visibly upset when popey jokingly throws what he thought was a deer bone at her after this exchange crappa returned to the site again to confirm her hunch that the bones she had found were those of a human and not the uh, deer bone that her coworker had thrown um even if she did uh, think she was uh, correct, what she did, she yet again does not share her hunches with anyone. Who the fuck is this person? A few days later, July 2nd, firefighter William Pupke uh, now returns to the scene where Krappa saw you know, Rodney take Robin. Uh, and now he discovers human remains. Immediately, he understands Krapa's odd reaction to his deer bone prank. Unlike his coworker, he actually calls the fucking police. Dana Krapa's name is clearly symbolic of, of who she was. A fucking useless piece of crap. Her story, so not done, not even close to being done. On the night of July 5th, 1979, 12 days after Robin last said goodbye to her friend, rode off on her bike, detectives show up at her mom's, uh, Mary Ann's door, deliver the news. No mom ever wants to hear. Robin's body has been found. July 6th, the autopsy, right, uh, uh, shows that, um, you know, definitely confirms it. Uh, Dental records confirm the remains are Robin's. Uh, The medical examiner notes, portions of the hands, left foot absent, disarticulation of the skull, upper three cervical vertebrae from the remains of the cervical vertebrae, remnants of soft tissue present in the jaws, pharynx, left temporal muscle, orbits surrounding the rib cage, lumbar and thoracic vertebrae, vertebral column, pelvis, remnants attached to the bones of the extremities, brownish soft tissue, firm and mummified. Uh, extensive evidence of animal erosion, hands absent bilaterally, apparently due to animalized erosion. No tool marks, chop marks, or saw marks where separation of the hands would have occurred. No evidence of anti mortem fracture, trauma, gunshot wound, stab wound, chop wound, or tool marks. Skull consistent with ca- uh, Caucasian race. Estimated height 57 and one quarter inches. No front teeth. Uh, because there was so much decay, which was really wild animals, uh, apparently ate her remains, cause of death could not be established. We also couldn't know with certainty if Robin had been sexually assaulted either. But because we know Rodney, we unfortunately have a very good idea of how she likely met her demise. July 7th, detectives show up at Rodney's house now. He's not there. His girlfriend, Elizabeth Keller is. Yep, that guy, still waiting to go on trial for the brutal rape of a 15-year-old. This convicted sex offender has a girlfriend now. So that's fun. Elizabeth, or Beth as her friends called her, was 22 when she'd met Alcala a few months earlier in the spring of 1979. And they shared a passion for what else? taking artsy, nudie pics of Rodney's mom. Beth was more into it than Rodney was. A week into dating, she had a life-size photo of Rodney's naked mom in clown makeup, wearing nothing but a clown wig and a matching clown Merkin pubic hair wig, both legs over her head, giving two thumbs up to the camera, uh, which of course was her son. And that of course is uh, not true, just more of my insanity. But she did share a passion with Rodney for something close to that, photography in general. I wonder if Rodney uh, showed her all of his photos. And I wonder if she liked him. Was she a fucking dirty bird too? She will later testify for the defense at his murder trial. Uh, Not a huge fan of hers. A little over 30 years later, 2010, she'll talk to 48 Hours correspondent, Harold Dow about Rodney. The long running CBS documentary slash news show uh, did an episode on the game show Killer. And she told, uh, you know, she told, um, sorry, Harold, uh, Rodney Alcala is an intelligent, well-mannered, pleasant, fun, outgoing, great individual. Not was, is. When asked if she was in love with Alcala and not like was in love, but just asked if she is in love, uh, um, she replies, yes. Oh shit. No, wait, you know what? I fucked up. Sorry. I'm having so many little, like, uh, I have to correct myself. When asked if she was in love, she replies, yes. Man, 2010. She only dated that dipshit for a few months before he went to prison. Why would you still think, uh, he was a good guy? Uh, when Dow asked what she thought about his photography, she replied, yeah, I saw a lot of pictures of girls. Young girls, he asked. Uh, young girls. I'd say probably from 12, 13 to probably about 30s. And that set off no red flags for her. What was happening? What the fuck is wrong with Beth? What the fuck is wrong with Beth and Dana Crappa? Uh, the day after detectives come to his house, talk to Beth on July 8th, 1979, Rodney tells Beth that he wants to move to Dallas for some uh, career opportunities. So he wants to own his own photography studio there. And for some reason, probably because Beth's a fucking idiot and a terrible judge of character. Uh, this doesn't reek of suspicion to her. And she doesn't call detectives and tell them that actually... Now that she thinks about it, she can't account for his whereabouts on the day that young murder victim Robin Samso went missing. Rodney now bolts, uh, but doesn't head uh, to Texas straight away. First, he takes a little trip to Seattle. July 11th, Rodney rents a storage unit from Cecil, Lockram, and her husband, uh, then stashes a bunch of creepy shit there, uh, then turns around and comes home. Following day, July 12th, Rodney drives all the way back to Los Angeles, at least 18 hours if he don't stop, tells Beth that he's moving to Texas permanently on July 24th, but he won't be able to pull that off. July 24th, 1979, Sergeant Ron Jenkins, Detective Craig Robinson, and the Huntington Beach Police Department arrive at Rodney's mom's house with a warrant. 7 a.m., Rodney naked in bed when they enter the house. They cuff him, take him in for an interview, presumably after he gets dressed, but funnier to me uh, to pretend uh, that they took him in naked and then interrogated him in the nude as well. Maybe that's how uh, suspected sexual predators should be interrogated, right? Show them pictures of victims, see if they get a boner or not. Right, it's, maybe it's harder harder to uh, get away with lying that way. Just uh, are you sure you haven't seen this girl before, Rodney? Why don't you take a good look at this pic? No, sir. No, no way. Look, I don't want to look at these pics anymore. Uh, they're disgusting. Eh, little Rodney seems to enjoy them. Throw him in the cell, boys. You just gave us enough—about three inches worth of uh, evidence—to uh, to charge him with. Come on. I want to the purge button again. Uh, despite Rodney claiming that he was at Knott's Farm interviewing for a job on the day in question, the police book Alcala for murder, set his bail at $250,000. Mom doesn't have the money to pay that one. Uh, other officers remain at the house, searching not only the house, but Alcala's Dotson as well for anything that might help in their case. Sergeant Ron Jenkins spots a receipt for a storage locker at Safeguard Mini Storage uh, Unit E24 in Seattle. That's going to turn out to be fucking huge. He notices that the receipt was dated after Samso disappeared. Since the search warrant didn't cover him taking the receipt from the house, he just wrote down all the information and left it where it was. Uh, And the house police also documented finding a pair of Japanese made handcuffs, box of photos, excuse me, boxes of photos, envelopes containing mail, pieces of rope, manila and blue nylon, eight magazines of young and naked, uh, two black photo binders, maybe full of nothing but erotic photos of his mom, maybe not, doesn't say Plastic slide, 35-millimeter tray and slide, uh, one frizzy black wig, one leather bullwhip, one pair of pink panties with black tape on each side, camera equipment, briefcase containing a set of keys, and around 1,200 photos, negatives, and slides. 1,200. In the dots, and they find binoculars, more photography equipment, maps, 35-millimeter camera with a strap, recently installed shag carpet. A lot of shady, seeming stuff, but no smoking gun. Uh, Rodney been arrested on July 14th. But the struggle to prove he was behind the kidnapping and murder of Robin Samso had just begun the following day uh, after they, you know, you know finished searching all the house. After being informed of a suspicious conversation between Rodney and his sister, Maria Christine, Sergeant Ed McErlane of the Huntington Beach Police Department drives to Maria Christine's house. Right, his mom. Uh, much to his surprise, Rodney's sister, mom, provides several alibis for Rodney when the 36-year-old man had, was uh, witnessed somewhere else. So they're clearly lying, so sad. When your son or brother is suspected of doing something this bad, maybe just maybe just don't do that. Maybe don't try any cover for form. Uh, also, had to work really hard not to paint another stupid scenario of Rodney's mom entering the door, maybe naked, uh, ready for a photo shoot, maybe wearing some weird outfit. Uh, next day, July, uh, or sorry, not the next day, but July 26th, Sergeant McMurlin and Detective Robinson get a warrant to search the Seattle storage locker. They fly up north. After a three-hour search, they collect a laundry list of evidence, including over 1,700 photographs and negatives in boxes, one of which is labeled Ode to New York, By John Berger. So now they got over 2,900 photographs, by my count, recovered in two places. Uh, They also find several earrings in a jewelry pouch, including a pair of gold rose earrings with a tiny diamond in the middle and a pair of gold ball earrings. Those will be confirmed to have belonged to Robin Samso. Now they have a smoking gun. July 28th, 1979. Rodney arraigned at the Municipal Court, West Judicial District, Orange County, California. Pleads innocent to the charges of kidnapping, lewd, or uh, lascivious Oh, shit. I can't remember how to say that word. Uh, lewd or... Nope. L-A-S-C-I-V-I-O-U-S. I'll look it up later, but uh, I thought I had that one when I wrote it down, and now I'm not so sure. Uh, Lashivus? Joe, do you know how to say that one? No idea. Okay. Lasavios. Lasavios. Ravioli. Lewd or Ravioli Lewd or lascivious. I think it's lascivious. Lascivious, there we go. That sounds good. Boom. Fucking got it. Lewd or lascivious acts upon a child under 14 murder and robbery. He's held without bail, request a public defender. August 24th, 1979, Rodney's deputy public defender, Chris Strople forced to step down, now due to a conflict of interest. Chris was taken off the case because he also had been taking nude pics of Rodney's mom for years. Now, uh, he'd, been, he'd been told that Rodney had made confessions about the murder and rape of Robin Samso to three inmates, and Strople was representing those three inmates in their cases. So it was a conflict of interest. John Barnett appointed to take over the case as Rodney's public defender, Preliminary hearings began in September. Then on October 4th, 1979, Rodney ordered by Judge John White to stand trial, kidnapping, and murder charges. Also supposed to appear in court for the attack on Monique Hoyt in Riverside, but the victim was determined to be unfit to testify against Rodney and had to undergo psychiatric evaluation. So, can't imagine what she went through. Poor girl. Uh, Once again, uh, Rodney gets a lucky break here with the criminal justice system. And yet another case, the murder of Jill Partineau in 1979, LAPD had to decide whether they're going to bring Alcala to trial or not. Took him nearly a year. They ultimately decide not to go ahead with the trial at that time. And again, he gets lucky. Fortunately, his luck is soon going to run out. Uh, The reason they didn't move forward was that John McQueen, who is an Orange County inmate and friend of Alcala, had lied in another case in which he served as the state's key witness, couldn't now be considered as a credible witness in Alcala's trial. As a result, that case dismissed. Rodney's luck with sex crimes in the 1970s goes away, uh, right when the new uh, next decade starts. February 15th, 1980, Superior Court Judge Philip E. Schwab determines that Rodney's previous offenses related to abductions and sexual attacks will be allowed into evidence. Huge win for the prosecution. Uh, the prosecution can now prove that Rodney was a sexual predator and a murderer with a long history of attacking women that several jail terms had done nothing to reform him. In my opinion, and I know that current laws disagree with me, but in my opinion, uh, that kind of history should always be allowed at these trials. I think it does absolutely pertain directly to, uh, you know, uh, uh, current charges in these kind of situations. I would just be so pissed as a jury member if that past info was kept from me. Would it taint my judgment? Yeah, but I think it should taint your judgment in cases of sexual predators because they do tend to follow patterns. March 6, 1980, the prosecution and defense teams made their opening statements in the people of the state of California versus Rodney James Alcala. Every seat in the courtroom taken. Besides uh, all the media, noticeably there are Rodney's uh, mom, small-framed, white-haired lady, who was holding a rosary as tight as she could. Uh, don't you dare pray for baby boy now, Mama. He's, uh, he's all devil now. And what was she wearing while she clutched that rosary? Well, uh, high heels and a fishnet bodysuit. Maybe. I mean, sources don't say, so she could have been. Uh, also in attendance was Robin Samso's mom, but she was not holding a rosary. She was concealing a twenty five caliber pistol in her purse. She planned to take it out, pointed at the man accused of murdering her daughter, and pulled the trigger. Fuck yeah. I wish she'd killed him and that she was then found not guilty of murder in the first degree and, uh, you know, let off with a warning. I mean, some motherfucker rapes and kills your kid. If you can get a shot off and put him down without hurting anyone else, should you really be punished? You're making the world a better place. I mean, maybe wait till he's found guilty, then kill him, uh, and then be given a special medal or something, some kind of key to the city from the mayor. I don't know. Thinking about this, maybe think about that old saying, you know, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, right? You just can't uh, keep uh, doing things for revenge, but not in this scenario. Vast majority of the world, not sexual predators, so we'll still have plenty of eyeballs left if we go open season on those motherfuckers. Uh, shortly after 9 a.m., Rodney led into a quiet courtroom in cuffs and shackles. She looks straight ahead, not looking at anyone in the court uh, courtroom. As the opening statements are read, Robin's mom opens her purse, places her hand on the gun, then she decides to wait, wants to listen to what the prosecution has to say. In the opening argument, prosecutor Richard Farnell wastes no time telling his version of the story. After giving the jury an outline of the details of the case, they're going to be hearing, He says, in his opinion, the linchpin of the trial will be the testimony of star witness Dana Crappa. Fuck. Yes, that dipshit. Dana Farnell promised the jurors would testify that she saw a man later identified as Rodney with a young girl, later identified as Robin, near where Robin's skeletal remains were found 12 days later. Farnell stated that during the trial, he would call on other witnesses as well who could place Rodney at the beach taking photos of people the day Robin went missing. Farnell finished his opening statement saying that by the end of the trial, the jury would be certain beyond a reasonable doubt that Rodney was the man who murdered Robin. Farnell then took his seat, sat back, did something unusual, took off his pants, started masturbating openly, without shame. He scanned the jury as he did so, unblinking, made direct eye contact with each and every juror, just went down the row, very impressive display of confidence. He had a huge dick, and when they saw him, with that firm wild hog in his hand, the jurors instantly knew they could trust this guy. Law professors still teach students about Farnell's opening statement, a power move today. Uh, most believe by the time he came upon his desk, he'd won the case.
2: I'm
0: having too much fun with that button. No, he sat down across his legs. Uh, it'd be funny if he did the other thing. Uh, then defense attorney John Barnett stood up and launched into the defense's opening statement. Uh, Barnett disagreed with Farnell's assertion that Dana Crappa was going to be a, a star witness. In fact, he claimed her testimony should uh, be thrown out, if you know, at least, least not believed. He said Crappa created her story because detectives and lawyers badgered her for months. He said Crappa had suffered a nervous breakdown and was suicidal, all because she'd been mercilessly, mercilessly, excuse me, barraged by cops to make up a story to support their case against Rodney. What? Crappa? Mentally unstable? No way. He seemed so fucking solid up until now. Uh, Barnett then concluded his opening statement by telling the jury his client had not committed murder. They would find so many holes in the case. By the end of the trial, they would agree with him and have no choice but to find Rodney not guilty. And then with that, Barnett took a seat and he took off his pants. Then he set his briefcase on the table in front of him, took out a dildo, big one, with a fist on one end, suction cup on the other. He licked the suction cup, slammed it down on the table. Jury gasped. Right. They also collectively leaned forward. They were riveted. Then Barnett climbed up on the table, nude from the waist down, spit on his hand, rubbed that spit on the fist, squatted down on it, took it all in, all the way to the elbow. Right. One quick motion, never even grunted, never broke eye contact with the jury. Continued making eye contact with the jurors as he squatted up and down, up and down on the fist while also jerking off while Rodney clapped and laughed and squealed behind him. Then Robin's mom stood up, shot and killed Rodney, When she did, Barnett came hard enough to literally take out a jury's eye. The judge stood up, applauded. Everyone else did as well. Everyone got to go home. Trial over. Hip, hip. Hooray. Okay, I'm done with that nonsense, at least for a little while. March 19th, 1980. Dana Crappa testifies. She saw Rodney forcefully steering a blonde girl into the woods. June 20th, 1979. Saw him again the following evening, roughly the same location. Dana, visibly nervous. Her voice was light, first quiet, kept breaking up. Dana is a fucking shit show. She's a hot mess. She looked down, never looked at the prosecutor in the face, described her drive up to the base camp, then stopped talking. Courtroom got silent for a solid minute, it says in sources. Then she described the car in detail. The Datsun's tinted windows, how she'd made, uh, had she seen it again, you know, June 21st, about a mile and a half from the previous location. Said she returned to the area June 25th, That's when she saw the body. She testified, I saw a body that was missing its hands and feet, smelled foul, also bloated like an animal, gets after it sits for a while. It was pretty cut up. She said the body had no head. It was decapitated. She said the head was next to the body and the face was gone. A loud cry then echoed in the courtroom. My God. Dana continued saying that she was horrified, left quickly, once again, decided to tell nobody why I, I will never understand that about what she had come across. Farnell then asked Dana if the man she had seen in the, at the scene was in the courtroom and Dana responded that she wasn't 100% sure now, but she thought maybe the individual sitting beside Mr. Barnett was probably that guy. For fuck's sake, Dana, what is wrong with you? Honestly, Judge Schwab then asked for the record to show that the witness had pointed out Rodney Alcala. Farnell then told the court he had no further questions, took a seat. Barnett began his, his cross-examination, asking Dana why she would have concealed valuable information. Uh, throughout the case. Dana responded, she was struggling with her demons. Said, I'm struggling with my own demons and I don't know if I can trust myself. What the fuck? How, how was she working as a firefighter? I mean, I'm starting to think she was uh, severely mentally ill. How did the prosecution not notice that? Uh, you know, and maybe think that they uh, shouldn't uh, rest their case on her testimony. Uh, another loss for the prosecution, Dana finishes by telling Barnett that the interviews with police were, were too intense for her. She was unsure by the end if what she thought she saw was even true. She doesn't even know what's happened now. Dana's Sanity was fucking hanging on by thread. Barnett then focused in on the fact that Dana had only caught a glimpse of the man, couldn't be 100% sure that it was uh, Rodney. Barnett also brought up the point that Dana had changed her story three times, which included changes at the time she reported to police police, uh, had her admit that she lied to the police at least seven times. Uh, she said, though, that she was uh, being honest now during the trial. <laughs> Fuck. And with that, Dana Crapa's long, weird story is finally not over, actually. Still have more to come. She's uh, oh, she's frustrated. Next day, March 20th, inmate named Robert J. Dove testifies that he heard Rodney tell another inmate, Michael Herrera, details about the death of Robin Samso. That same day, Michael Herrera elaborates on the conversation. A few weeks later, April of 1980, state rests its case. Over the course of two and a half months, almost 50 witnesses had testified, including, including numerous girls who had been approached by Rodney the day Robin disappeared and had not gotten in his car. A lot of young girls, very long, very difficult case. The jury, when they exit the courtroom to start deliberating, Barnett asked the judge to dismiss all charges. He says the government had failed to prove its case. The defense contended that prejudicial evidence had been presented, which would prevent the jury from reaching a fair verdict. Thankfully, Judge Schwab denies the motion. Uh, The defense then specifically requested that the charge of kidnapping be dropped because no proof had been presented that a kidnapping had taken place. prove kidnapping, you got to prove that uh, force was used. But evidence shows that Robin uh, was enticed into the car. Once again, motion denied. Fuck yeah. Barnett uh, tries to get that kidnapping charge dismissed because of an important rule. According to the California death penalty law at the time, if kidnapping and murder occurred together, the defendant would be eligible to be sentenced to death. Despite these denials, Barnett, he still uh, feels like he has one last ace up his sleeve. The defense sent motions to have the lewd and lascivious act on a child dismissed as the prosecution hadn't given detailed evidence that that had happened. And unfortunately, those charges were dismissed. And Barnett was so thrilled by this, apparently he spoke to any reporter who would listen, telling him that dropping the molestation charges had totally vindicated his client or that, you know, particular aspect of the molestation charge. They did not. The defense begins presenting this case April 8th. They start by focusing on alibi witnesses. Barnett called several alibi witnesses to show that Alcala could not have been the person who kidnapped or killed Robin Samso. Included in the group is a man named Tim Fallen, who said he saw Robin riding her yellow bike at the beach the day after she was supposed to be missing. And he was an idiot. He was mistaken, it would turn out. Uh, next day, April 9th, Alcala's sisters and his dipshit girlfriend, Beth, claimed that Rodney couldn't have been involved with Robin's death because they saw him the night in question. And they are liars. Beth also provided records to prove that he made a one-minute phone call to her on June 21st, 9.15 p.m., left a message shortly after that, 10.08 p.m., she called him back. She said they stayed on the phone for 19 minutes. So there's, there's no way that he could have, uh, you know, been seen by Dana Crappa. But it was pretty clear to the jury that these were uh, very biased witnesses. Their stories didn't seem totally true, mostly because they actually weren't true. Uh, Next, the defense attacks Michael Herrera's testimony that Rodna had given him details about Robin's murder. April 9th, inmate Joseph Drake takes a stand to testify that Robert Dove and Michael Herrera collaborated with him to lie about the conversation in order to strike an informant's bargain with police. Fuck, that's not good. Barnett next day uh, calls Dr. Albert J. Rosenstein to testify about Dana Krappa's mental condition. Rosenstein is a forensic psychologist hired by the defense. He reviews the trial transcripts, tapes of the interviews by Crappa. uh, And get this, he says that Dana has been manipulated through low-level hypnosis. What is that? Is that a thing? No, it's not. But it's something uh, apparently a star witness, you know, or for the defense, could say in fucking court in 1980 to try and trick a jury, apparently. Uh, Rosenstein also stated that he had the highest degree of certainty that Dana's testimony was confabulated, which is a process in which the witness fills gaps in memory with false and imaginary information often implanted by others. That unfortunately can be real, right? False memory syndrome. Uh, We've uh, talked about it in numerous episodes. It's in a lot of innocent people to prison in the past. False memory contamination uh, can be a real problem. Asking leading questions, can plant seeds in a witness's mind about how they should answer a question. Investigators coaching witnesses into saying certain things because they're confident they have the right suspect can cause witnesses to cave to a form of peer pressure. Many of us are so-called people pleasers, right? The urge to please can be so strong. We'll convince ourselves We're remembering something that someone seems to want us to remember, even though it never happened. A bit more complicated than that, but that's the gist of it. Uh, But then Farnell cross-examines Dr. Rosenstein, points out that uh, he's a psychologist who serves uh, far more often as a defense witness than he does for the DA. Uh, Rosenstein had been testifying in court two to three times a week recently, had to testify between 100 and 150 times. The insinuation was clear. Rosenstein was a shill, a witness for hire, a paid gun. Who knew what to say to manipulate a jury? Rosenstein responded, he's not a prostitute or a whore. Farnell now pulls his dick out in court again. He fucking slams a hundred bucks in front of Rosenstein, tells him there's a thousand more where that came from. If the doctor will suck his dick right now in front of everyone in the court, and for the next seven and a half minutes approximately, that is exactly what Rosenstein did. And it was glorious. It was like watching Michael Jordan or Serena Williams or Barry Bonds in their primes, part. Peak athletic performance, part performance art. Pure mastery of a craft. When the two men were done, the entire courtroom, judge included, rose to their feet, burst into thunderous applause, tears streaming down many of their faces, random cheers of bravo, uh, good show, sir, hip, hip, hooray, here, here, echoing through the courtroom, and of course, god damn it. And of course, a purse siren goes off, and everyone is killed. No. Farnell then asked why Rosenstein almost never testified for the prosecution. And Rosenstein responded that uh, he was far too expensive and that didn't sit well with the jury. Defense finally rests their case, April 23rd. Rodney never took the stand in his own defense. That's uh, probably definitely, definitely for the best. April 28th, final arguments begin and then his closing argument, Farnell walks along the jury line, taking the time to meet the eyes of each of the nine women and three men. Uh, this part's real. He did look at him in the eye. He's, he's fully clothed. He focused on Alcala's past arrests and convictions. Rodney was a known sex pervert, a convicted child molester, down at the beach taking pics of young girls, trying to get those girls to get into his fucking car. The day Robin goes missing, multiple witnesses attested to that. One of those witnesses, right, Jackie Young, neighbor of Robin's friend Bridget, who saw Rodney talking to Robin about taking pictures of her the day she disappeared. Ending his statement, Farnell urged the jurors to give Alcala the punishment he deserved. Then Barnett stood up, started his closing argument, admitting that Rodney yeah, was a bad man, but that the state had not proved that he killed Robin. He stated that there was no physical evidence that Robin was abducted by Rodney on June 20th. There was no hairs, fibers to link the two of them together. Only a witness with very little credibility, Dana Dipshit, linked them together. He then thanked the jurors for their time, finished by saying that they should vote the only way that made sense, not guilty. Next day, the 29th, first day of jury deliberations, they requested to have some of Crappa's uh, confusing testimony read back to them. Of course they did. Uh, Then they still don't come to a verdict by the end of that day. It's a sleepless night for Robin's mom, who's still carrying her gun in her purse. Loaded gun. Still waiting for the time to use it. Ah, the days before courtroom metal detectors. Uh, the jury does come to a decision. April 30th, 1980, after two days of deliberation. On the charges of first-degree murder with the use of a deadly weapon and forced kidnapping, they find Rodney guilty. Cheer goes out throughout the courtroom. Uh, there's actually so much cheering, the judge has to call court back to order. Uh, next, time, uh, next comes the penalty phase of the trial. All right, Farnell uh, only calls two witnesses to testify at the penalty phase hearing. Both were uh, Rodney Alcala's former parole officers, closed by saying that Alcala was a cold and calculating killer who stalked girls for selfish uh, you know, sexual purposes. Only death was an appropriate punishment. The defense did not call any witnesses, and Rodney did not speak on his own behalf. Guessing they understood that Rodney speaking would probably make things worse, and no friends or family speaking would actually help either. Uh, Rodney's attorney spoke, though, in his speech, Barnett acknowledged that his client was a sick and disturbed man. According to him, Rodney suffered from a mental disease that caused him to go from a normal man one minute to an unpredictable, frenzied man the next. That damn antisocial personality disorder. That is not exactly how it works, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Bizarrely, Barnett also claimed that his client was only found guilty as a result of anger and fear. Not sure painting Rodney as a victim uh, was a great call. Uh, March 7th, 1980, the penalty phase ends. The jurors reach a verdict after only four hours. They recommend the death penalty. Impulsively, Robin's mom yells, all right. And then she begins to cry out loud. That poor mother. Rodney shows no emotion. It was almost like he hadn't heard the verdict. In talking with the media outside of the courthouse, the jurors said that they were never in disagreement about Rodney's guilt. The only thing they were split on was deciding if he should be convicted of second degree murder, murder with intent, but without premeditation or first degree murder, murder with intent or malice afterthought or malice aforethought. And then they had almost no trouble reaching the death penalty recommendation. About a week later, Robin's mom does an interview where she admits to having the gun in her purse throughout the whole trial and that quite often she had clutched the gun inside of her purse for reassurance. She said the only thing that kept her from shooting Rodney was the thought of her other kids growing up without a mom. Uh, This time, uh, she, she said the time she came the closest to shooting Rodney was when at one point that motherfucker blew kisses towards her in the courtroom. What a sadist take someone's young daughter, rape and kill them and then taunt them about it. Again, I think parents should be at least allowed to take a crack at killing anyone who rapes and or kills their kids. And if that person then taunts them, well, now you get to fire as many shots as it takes to put them down. June 20th, 1980, Orange County Superior Court Judge Philip E. Schwab sentences Alcala to death for the murder of Robin Samso. He would say, it is fair to say the evidence disclosed that the defendant in a premeditated manner stalked his prey for a number of days. The defendant not only has a prior felony conviction, but there are also distinct similarities to this case. This is a particularly vicious and cruel crime. He's a man of depraved character, but he is able to appreciate the difference between right and wrong. He's arranged uh, to have his death take place by gas chamber. And at the time, Rodney actually, uh, you know, could have been executed as a real possibility. The state had abolished capital punishment, in 1972, but reinstated it in 1976. Alcala would now be locked up in San Quentin, awaiting an appeal to the Supreme Court. And then a few months later, uh, Rodney gets convicted again. His trial for the 1978 rape of then 15-year-old Monique Hoyt back on. She felt well enough now to testify. Hail Nimrod and hail Monique Hoyt. September of 1980, Rodney convicted and sentenced to nine years in state prison for that. Then in February of 1981, uh, uh, Rodney's appointed appeals attorney, Keith Monroe, files Rodney's appeal. Said there were two big problems with the first trial. First, too much weight was given to the testimony of jail informants. Uh, You know, their testimony he thought was highly suspicious. Second, some potential jurors had been removed because they admitted they did not agree with the death penalty. And that, declared Monroe, was an arbitrary decision because federal law requires those who disagree with the death penalty be permitted to serve as jurors. Supreme Court of California approves the appeal. April 10th, 1981, his appeal hearing begins. And after six weeks, he loses. Fuck yeah, bro. Right? Should be over. Right? No, no, it's not. May 20th, 1981, Judge Schwab rules that Rodney could have his ass hauled right back to death row. So that's good. He's having no look at this point with the justice system in the 80s, but that's going to change. Uh, a few years later, August 23rd, 1984, the Supreme Court of California reverses Rodney's death sentence. In a five to one decision, the trial court committed, uh, they said the trial court committed an error and in admitted into evidence the defendant's prior crimes which they said were not similar to the case of Robin Samso, so it did not establish a pattern, intent, scheme, or motive. The court would write, The alleged similarities among the offenses are common to a substantial portion of the population of child molesters, including the use of charm or deception, transportation to places of privacy and violence. There was no peculiar pattern in the defendant's past conduct that establishes his identity as the girl's killer by setting him apart from the general class of violent sex offenders against children. We will conclude that the convictions and exceptional circumstances finding must be reversed since the admission of prior offenses uh, constituted prejudicial error on those items. Because this ruling, Rodney uh, returned to his pre-trial status and uh, would now be recharged with his crimes as though the original trial never happened. So this is worst case scenario for Robin Samso's mom and for the relatives and friends of other victims. April 23rd, 1986, now a second trial. It's like they start over uh, for Robin Samso's murder. Judge Donald A. McCartan uh, would be presiding over the trial. Thomas Goethels would act as prosecutor. Goethels started his opening statement by describing Rodney as one of the most notorious, horrendous criminals in the history of the U.S. Just like in the first trial, right? He would also use fucking Dana Crappa as a key witness. Oh, man. And if you think this is a bad call, you're right. He closed his statement by thanking the jurors, confidently stating at the end of the trial, they would return the only verdict that was appropriate, guilty of murder. The defense attorney this time, John Patrick Dolan, like in the previous trial, he attacks Dana Crappa's credibility. The credibility of the inmates who testified against Rodney concluded his opening statement by telling him, yeah, Rodney's a piece of shit. Yeah, he's, he's at the beach that day. Sure, he could have taken some uh, pictures of Robin, but he did not kill, kidnap, or rape her. Next day starts with a surprise for everyone who witnesses in court, but I don't think it'll surprise anyone listening. Dana Crappa, outside of the presence of the jury, speaks to Judge McCartan, tells the judge that she does not remember any of the events that took place while she was working as a firefighter, just in fucking general now. Also told him that she did not remember what she had testified at the preceding trial, and therefore she should not be called as a witness. My God, she's a train wreck. Why why couldn't anyone else have seen Rodney those two days in the woods? Like, anyone else? A fucking, why couldn't a blind person have just maybe heard someone and thought it could have been Rodney? I wish there was no info on what the fuck was going on with Dana uh, Dana out there. Uh, Judge McCartan ruled that Crapple was incapable of testifying as a witness in this trial, but said her testimony from the first trial could be read out loud in court. Defense attorney John Patrick Dolan outraged, but Judge McCartan sticks to his motion. Dana's initial statements can be read at the trial. During this trial, the prosecution relies heavily on circumstantial evidence. Uh, however, they did present an expert to testify that the earrings the police had found in uh, Alcala's storage locker in Seattle did belong to Robin. This trial only lasts four weeks this time. May 25th, 1986, the jury finds him again guilty of murder and false imprisonment, of a deadly weapon, kidnapping. Which if I didn't say that the first time, they found him guilty of all those things. Penalty phase uh, begins June 9th 9th now. The day began with Rodney uh, reading out a 49-page letter. (laughs) He had written about, about his attorneys. Oh my God, I'm sure that was super fun. And not torturous at all for everyone in the court to have to listen to. God, how many hours did that take? And another thing, I don't like him. And I just don't think he did a really good job for me. And I don't like the thing he said on the second day of trial. He talked about, you know, uh, Robin was doing this, but he should have been doing that, Just droning on and on. He said they were unprepared, unwilling to provide him with adequate defense and that he'd severed his relationship with them, would not cooperate with them in the future. Because of their incompetence, he was asking that his case be dismissed. This was read outside the presence of the jury. The judge then, you know, uh, doesn't fucking do that. Uh, Thomas Gothels now brings in two witnesses to testify. The first is Tali Shapiro. Rodney Alcala's first known victim back from uh, 1968. She's now 26 years old. She describes how Alcala had kidnapped and raped her when she was only eight. Next to testify, Monique Hoyt's father. States his daughter had been kidnapped, raped, tied with ropes, gagged, emphasized that Rodney had been found guilty for that, sentenced to nine years in prison, and that uh, now his daughter was so traumatized because of this new trial that she couldn't appear in court again. Rodney now addresses the court, seated in his chair. Uh, He's very soft-spoken, seems very relaxed. And he says... My 13-year prison record shows I'm, I'm harmless. I am not a threat to hurt anyone. Roddy admitted that he, yeah, he had, he had a history of molesting young girls. And okay, you know, he, he did take and possess a lot of child porn. And yes, he had violated his parole to hang out with another girl. And sure, okay, yeah, he got found guilty of raping and beating a 15-year-old girl. But other than that, he's totally harmless. Most days of his life, he doesn't kill anyone. Uh, he denied that he ever met Robin, despite direct eyewitness testimony to the contrary from numerous witnesses. And then he says, uh, please don't kill me. I don't think I should die for something I didn't do. He appeals to the jury to send him to prison for life, arguing that he's harmless away from children. Rodney's mom then comes to the stand. <laughs> what a weird thing. I mean, if you don't put me near a kid, I'm a pretty nice guy. I'm, I'm a decent photographer. Uh, Rodney's mom comes to take the stand to testify for him. This, oh, this She's in tears all the whole time. Says she believed he's innocent. He's always been a good boy. He's quiet, studious. He's kind to her. He served in the army for God's sake. And she pleads with the jurors to spare his life. And she might, while doing this, have been wearing a G-string bikini. And maybe she begged to have her boy freed because no one could quite capture her raw sexuality on film like he could. Sources don't say that. But you know, I don't know, maybe. A jury would start deliberations June 19th, 1986. And uh, once again, it wouldn't take them long to come to a decision. For a second time, June 20th, He is convicted of Robin Samso's murder. The jury recommends the death penalty. Seven years to the day from when Robin went missing. August 20th, 1986, the formal sentencing begins. Judge Schwab agrees with the jury, senses this motherfucker to death again. Then this time, after more appeals, December 21st, 1992, the California Supreme Court unanimously upholds Rodney's death sentence, right? Should be over. Nope. Oh my God, so much money and time and energy waste on this sad, sick fuck. Less than two years later, 1994, uh, Roddy now publishes a book. It's called You, the Jury. No surprise, self-published, uh, not easy to find, but big thanks actually to the folks at openlibrary.org. I had not used them before. A lot of obscure, uh, rare books you can find there in digital form, which uh, comes in very handy if you're doing research for anything. Uh, yeah, openlibrary.org. Uh, anyone with a free account can see what this uh, maniac wrote. It's a fucking terrible read. His grammar, sentence structure, spelling, etc., not bad. Uh, read any given page. You know, you can tell right away this guy's no dummy, you know, uh, good vocabulary, but the book is shit. Uh, less of a book and more of a big research paper covering the trial in so much depth. Organized very well, great table of contents, but I don't know who outside of his mom, uh, sisters, uh, dipshit girlfriend, Beth, would ever want to read all of it. Mostly stuff like, uh, this witness said that, this other witness said this. Uh, here are the exhibits entered into trial uh, by the prosecution, uh, you know, evidence uh, on this date, et cetera, et cetera. But also there's a fair amount of trial speculation. What the prosecution and his defense lawyers got wrong about this or that and what uh, really happened and what probably happened and what should have been brought up. And Rodney being a complete fucking heartless sociopath, uh, his, his evil really shines through in those sections. On pages 29 and 30, he describes his victim's supposed home life. Of course, he claims uh, she was not his victim, though. Uh, He theorizes at one point that some other perverted photographer on the beach that day trying to take photos of kids was probably who did it, right? Like there was a fucking epidemic in Southern California of sexual predators with expensive cameras around their necks trying to talk young girls into fucking nude photo shoots. There's no proof of any other photographer being around there, by the way. Uh, He alleged uh, that Robin wasn't happy at home, that her mom, Marianne, beat some of her siblings, That her mom was uh, also fucking all kinds of strange dick. Uh, Any one of these guys could have killed her daughter. He wrote, her mother brought home many men friends. And many times, uh, Mrs. Frazier would stay out all night entertaining these friends. Oh, cool. Uh, Raping and killing her daughter wasn't enough. Now you have to try and paint Marianne as a delinquent mom. Just chasing dick instead of watching her kids. Uh, Also alleges that there was a good chance that Marianne, being a shitty mom, probably got her daughter killed. He writes about Robin uh, wanting to run away. She'd been wanting to run away for months, probably did run away the day she went missing. And then he says, uh, whatever Robin's plans, they went askew and Robin lost her life. How did Robin die? Her plans went askew. Askew plans killed her, not Rodney. Rodney pulled all this shit out of his ass. None of it's based in evidence. Uh, Rest of the book, in addition to being uh, full of so many core details, you know, just full of more bullshit like that. Oh, and he refers to himself in the third person throughout the book as if he forgot it's about him and also forgot that he, you know, fucking wrote it. Uh, March 30th, 2001, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals issues an unexpected reversal of Alcala's conviction, the second trial. Goddamn. Uh, Federal District Judge Stephen Wilson of Los Angeles writes an opinion stating that during Alcala's 1986 trial, Judge McCartan of Orange County committed several game-changing errors. Uh, Judge McCartan, uh, the opinion declared allowed the defense to rely on old evidence from Dana Crappa Ah, Her story won't go away, Uh, which didn't go far enough in proving their case. As much as I hate Rodney. uh, Legally, though, this probably was a right call. I mean, we know he did it, but the state actually, did they have enough evidence to prove it with Dana dipshit as her star witness? Ah, Probably not. Further, the opinion concluded that Judge McMartin had ruled incorrectly when he did not allow psychologist Ray William London to testify for the defense. London had listened to hours of tape police interviews with Dana, was set to testify that her statements did in fact appear to be induced. Fucking Dana! Furthermore, the opinion said Alcala's lawyers should have been allowed to introduce a psychologist's testimony that cast even more doubt on Crapadapa fucking Ding Dong's amnesia claim. Uh, finally, the opinion stated, I love that it's all hinged on Dana, Alcala's attorneys did not call a witness to support Alcala's alibi that he was interviewing for a job as a photographer at Knott's Berry Farm the day Robin Samso disappeared. Well, it's because he wasn't. We'll find out later. Uh, Not like he said. As a result, the ruling said the court ordered the state of California to give him a retrial or just release him. Jesus Christ. Thankfully, the state chooses to see him in court again. He's 57 now. He's being tried for the third fucking time. Luckily, this time around, advances in forensic science since his first two trials, especially the first one, uh, some legal changes gave the prosecution a lot more evidence to use against him. Finally, this case is not Hinging on Dana Dingling a Ding Dong. Uh, uh, 2002, new California state law passed, now allowed police officers and correction officers to take samples of DNA from prisoners, using reasonable force if necessary, if they refused to give samples voluntarily. The DNA samples then put into a state DNA database so law enforcement could use the database to search for DNA profiles that match crime scenes. You know, Rodney uh, would try and sue the state to have this law overturned, didn't want to give his DNA. Tough shit. They fucking took it from him. His pleas ignored. Uh, The task of prosecuting Rodney uh, falls for a third time, for the third time now, to Orange County Senior Deputy DA Matt Murphy, who in 1979 was about the same age as Robin Samso. Uh, Murphy would get a huge break. During the years, the Samso case had wandered through the appellate courts. DNA technology caught up with Rodney. Now LA Cold Case Squad suddenly linked him to three other unsolved murders. With new DNA evidence, LA County Deputy DA Gina Satriano would charge Alcala for the murders of 18-year-old Jill Barcombe. 27-year-old Georgia Wickstead and 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb, who had all been killed between November of 1977 and June of 1978. Also, Jill Partno, 21, killed in her Burbank apartment in 1979. We covered all four of their murders. All four have been uh, brutally sexually tortured, their bodies you know, posed after death, semen found uh, you know, on in all uh, the bodies. Now that semen matched to Rodney believing they had enough evidence to convict Rodney as a serial killer. Matt Murphy, Gina Satriano, uh, want to prosecute the five L.A. area murder cases altogether. October 7, 2003, Alcala brought before Superior Court Judge Francisco Pedro Briseno, who would be presiding over Rodney's third trial. Alcala will plead not guilty to the five murders, of course. He'll also make a motion to act as his own lawyer. So this is going to be fun, saying he knew the case better than his appointed attorney, David Zimmerman. Then, after over six years of numerous fucking weird delays, uh, Zimmerman died at one point, a bunch of other motions. January 11th, 2010, Rodney's trial for the five murders finally begins. Uh, You know, he's made the terrible decision to represent himself. Uh, He's now 66 uh, on, you know, trial in Orange County for the murder, uh, you know, third time. If found innocent, he'll be immediately released and be in line for a huge civil settlement for wrongful imprisonment. I mean, he's been over 30 years since his arrest for Robin's murder. Uh, This trial will be the weirdest of his three trials by far. He shows up in the courtroom, first day to represent himself, wearing a tan sports coat, blue shirt, striped blue tie. Uh, Court-appointed investigator Albert Ross sits beside him. His mom, in her 90s, shows up wearing a top hat, monocle, crotchless panties, nothing else. Holding a sign that reads, free my sweet misunderstood artist. Mama needs a new photo shoot. I think maybe I'm finally done with that now. I'm, I'm not sure. The Prosecution presents its evidence by calling forensic experts to testify about the numerous this guy definitely fucking did it DNA matches. He left his semen all over these crime scenes. They show photographs of all the posing he did to emphasize his brutality. And then on February 2nd, okay, this is what I was laughing at before. I thought I was gonna come up with the initial description. Sporting black sunglasses inside because he's so fucking cool, you guys. His, his hair long, gray and unkempt, flowing uh, about a foot past his shoulders, wearing a sports jacket. Now, Rodney begins his uh, proper defense. He looks like a college professor currently on leave of absence uh, due to suffering a psychotic break a few months earlier. He opens with, about 10,820 days, five hours and 15 minutes ago. Really, he's relatable. Robin Samso left Bridget Wilford's apartment on Bridget's bike. Neither Bridget nor Robin's family saw Robin again. About 33 days and 16 hours later, I was arrested and charged with Robin's murder. I've been incarcerated since then, about nine years in Orange County Jail, almost all the rest in San Quentin's death row. He then showed the jury a video he made. <laughs> he projected on the screen called 6 minute and 15 second window of opportunity. The video attempted to show that he did not have the opportunity to kidnap Robin because at the time she went missing, he was at Knott's Berry Farm, applying for a job. Then he said the gold earrings found in his locker uh, unit in Seattle belonged to him, not Robin even though no one remembered him ever having fucking his ears pierced back then. And then he would show the jury the 1978 dating game episode, right? He appeared on as a contestant, told him to watch very carefully. There was a quick second on the show where his hair flipped up. You can see the earring. I have watched that footage at least fucking 10 times. No, you can't. You can clearly see he is not wearing earrings. After the earring horse shit, Rodney goes on talking for an hour, uh, never once mentioning the four other murders he'd been charged with. Only focuses on Robin's murder. Just one of five he's been charged with. When the judge finally interrupts him, because he's just droning on and on uh, and tells him that the point of an opening statement is to give an outline of the case. Rodney apologizes and just kind of quickly, uh, awkwardly wraps up. Doesn't summarize the case. So maybe this guy's not a genius. Oh, shoot. uh, Sorry, Your Honor. Uh, My bad. I was just so rushed putting all this together. I wish I could have had a few more decades uh, to prepare how to figure all this out. Rodney now calls his first witness to the stand himself. During the course of the trial, Rodney, acting as his own attorney, will ask himself questions. He will refer to himself as Mr. Alcala in a deeper than normal voice and then answer himself in a different voice. (laughs) It's so fucking awkward. I wish there was footage of it. His peculiar answer and question session will continue for five straight hours, right? Him posing questions like, Rodney, uh, would you please tell us about your hair? Would you tell us what you did on June 15th? Uh, Mr. Alcala, what did you do on June 16th? Mr. Alcala, after you spent time with your sister and kids, what did you do? Okay, Mr. Alcala, what did you do next? Uh, what was the next phone call you made, Mr. Alcala? What was the next thing you did, Mr. Alcala? He answered every question in great detail. Like a level of detail uh, you would have if you had, say, memorized the script, as opposed to just try to remember what you actually did. Uh, reiterating the claim about Knott's Farm. I picture him answering his questions in an especially high voice, right? To make all this uh, that much weirder. Uh, Mr. Alcala... Uh where were you when Robin didn't show up for work at the ballet school? I was at Notchbury Farm, standing next to the Calico River rapids, taking some pictures. And mister Alcala, uh why were you at Knottsbury Farm? I was meeting Mr. Knottsbury for a job interview. And mister Alcala, can mister Knottsbury personally corroborate your claim? He's busy making some tasty jams or something, but he wrote a note saying I'm innocent uh, to give to the nice judge man. Whee! I know this sounds exactly like Woody. Uh, You get it. Something like that. Uh, Something really, really insane. Uh, Rodney also spoke of having absolutely no memory of various long long sequences of time. Uh, The only other witness for the defense, psychologist Richard Rappaport, offered the explanation that Alcala's memory lapses could be equated to his borderline personality disorder. So he's picked up a new disorder for this third trial. So that's cool. February 22nd, closing arguments begin in a very quiet voice. Robert uh, Rodney uh, stated that his, his closing argument or started his closing argument by telling the jury that Murphy's entire case was based on magical thinking and that the evidence against him was just a bunch of gimmicks and lies. Come on. Yeah, they have a lot of witnesses, a lot of eyewitnesses. Yes, there's a lot of DNA evidence. A lot of scientists have talked to you. It's called gimmicks and lies and magic. Uh, weirdly, uh, Rodney then gives uh, gives the prosecution a nod for doing an excellent job and concludes If you think I was willfully false in any part of my testimony, I can't think of what it could possibly be. I think I've gone on long enough. I think that covers everything, and I'll conclude my final argument. Okay. February 25th, 2010. Jury returns a verdict. Guilty of five counts of first-degree murder and one count of kidnapping. So weird that he didn't catch any break, considering how fucking incredible his top-notch legal team was. Uh, March 2nd, 2010 marked the beginning of Alcala's third penalty phase. Interestingly, uh, actress Charlize Theron was spotted sitting in the back row in the courtroom. When asked later why, she said she was researching for an upcoming movie role of Eileen Wernos, that serial killer. Uh, we need to suck the story of Eileen Wernos one of these days. I saw that movie, Monster. Oh, it's great. Uh, the prosecution once again called for the death penalty. They also introduced a surprise witness, Tali Shapiro, right, the girl he had raped and beaten within an inch for life about forty years ago now. Shapiro uh, there to witness justice for Robin Samso. 12, Jill Barcombe, 18, Georgia Wickstead, 27, Charlotte Lamb, 31, Jill Partno, 21. Uh, finally been achieved. Judge Braseno then asked if Alcala wished to make a statement. He replies, no, I don't, your honor, and then starts making a statement because he's a fucking crazy person. No, I don't, your honor, and then says, by giving me the death penalty, you become a wannabe killer in waiting. Your desire to become part of that elite group of citizens, your desire to share in the killing of a human being is eloquently expressed by Arlo Guthrie. Uh, what? Uh, elite. Interesting adjective choice. Not sure I'd refer to serial killers as being elite. Uh, prolific. Okay. Infamous. Okay. But elite, too positive a connotation. Uh, not admired. And Arlo Guthrie, fucking folk singer. Yeah, he plays a clip from Arlo Guthrie's 1967 song, Alice's Restaurant Now. In the song, the narrator has to go see a psychiatrist in order to convince an army recruiter that he is a suitable candidate to be in the army. He says to the shrink, I want to kill. I mean, I want to kill, kill. During the clip, Robin Samsoe's dad has to get up and leave the courtroom. But he wished, uh, you know, he wasn't now living in the era of courtroom metal detectors and had that gun his, uh, you know, wife or ex-wife had before. Uh, The jurors then leave the courtroom to make their decision. Less than an hour, they come back. Verdict, you know, again, fucking death penalty. Third time. After the verdict, family members of the victims read impact statements to Rodney before he's removed from the courtroom. Alcala never flinched, regardless of what was being said. You're a monster, worse than a rabid pit bull, burn in hell. Some were more forgiving. Uh, victim J- Jill Barcombe's brother Bruce said he felt no animosity towards Alcala. Instead, he just asked the man who left his sister curled up in a fucking bloodied ball along Franklin Canyon to give, his, uh, to give up his futile Perry Mason-filled fantasy and to take responsibility for his crimes and to work with authorities to identify other victims uh and uh, sister of georgia wickstead who was found raped and killed in her Malibu apartment asked who would do that to her she read a letter from their mom who had suffered mental illness because of her daughter's murder uh robert samso brother of 12 year old uh, uh the brother of the victim robin yeah 12 year old uh, victim robin samso read a letter from charlotte lamb's sister who couldn't be present expressed only the longing of her beloved shug dd Dee Dee Partno. Sister of Jill Partno asked how Alcala would feel if his sister were killed the way, uh, you know, her sister was killed. And she said she still hates hazy June days like the one she got uh, that, you know, was that was happening when she got news of her sister's death. Uh, Last to speak, Robin Samso's mom, Marianne, who delivered a tear filled address bolstered by her attorney. Uh, She she said she had given up her hatred up to God because she didn't want to let her daughter's killer have any more control of her. But she did say she wished she could live to see Alcala put to death and she wished that she could administer the lethal injection herself. Hail Nimrod, fucking hail Marianne. That motherfucker should have had both his Achilles tendons sliced in half in the courtroom there, been dumped into a fucking pit of hungry hyenas. Found guilty three times. Uh, Another presiding judge speaks, Francisco Pedro Prezeno. He concluded that Alcala's testimony had not been credible. His alibi of being in a job interview at Knott's Berry Farm at the time of Robin Samso's disappearance was not true and not supported by witness testimony. Uh, his consciousness of guilt was evident in his admitted evasiveness to Huntington Beach police. His attempts to hide the property receipt to the uh, Seattle storage locker uh, proved to be the jackpot for investigators. Uh, his sudden move to Seattle and the replacement of carpeting in his car immediately after a composite of Alkala was released to the media after the Samso disappearance spoke to his guilt. Judge Presento also dismissed the conclusion of Alcala's paid expert psychiatrist as to the defendant's psychotic borderline personality uh, at the time of the Los Angeles murders as supported only by the defendant's own statements. Prezento, who never uttered an opinion as to the merits of either side of the case throughout the trial, now addressed the families of the victims. We'd like to think we avoid the impact of evil in our lives, said the former Marine who was in Vietnam during Alcala's first known attack on eight-year-old Tali Shapiro, Citing one of the more bizarre moments from the trial, the judge said Alcala had played his national anthem during his closing arguments when the chorus, I want to kill, I want to kill from Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant shocked and offended jurors and family members. As Rodney was shackled and led from the defense table one last time, family and friends who had carried heavy hearts for 30 years burst into applause. Shortly after the trial, police released more than a hundred photos of unidentified women and girls from Rodney's collection, hoping someone would identify them and they could figure out if these were the images of unknown victims. Although many of the 2,900-plus pictures were innocent poses in a park or on the beach, plenty of them were women, girls, and boys who had taken off their clothes for the camera. Police believed at least two of the pictures were taken after uh, the women being photographed had been murdered. Many of the photos never been released due to being too sexually graphic. How many of the subjects in the photos are murder victims whose cold cases have never been solved? Same year, Seattle police named uh, Rodney a person of interest in the unsolved murders of Antoinette Whitaker just 13, in July of 1977, and Joyce Gaunt, just 17, in February of 1978. Other cold cases reportedly targeted for reinvestigation in California, New York, New Hampshire, Arizona. Next year, 2011, Rodney indicted for the murders of Ellen Hoover, uh, Hover, uh, and Cornelia Crilly, which he uh, then pled guilty to on December 14, 2012, uh, citing a desire to return to California to pursue appeals of his death penalty conviction. A Manhattan judge was sentenced him to an additional 25 years to life in 2013. Before that, March 20, uh, 20, oh my God, 2011, investigators in Marin County, California, north of San Francisco, announced that they were confident Rodney was responsible for the 1977 murder of 19-year-old Pamela Jean Lamson. Disappeared after a trip to Fisherman's Wharf to meet a man who offered to photograph her. Uh, her battered naked body subsequently found in Marin County near a hiking trail. Posed, I'm guessing, but couldn't find uh, evidence of that sources. 2016, Wyoming prosecutors charged Rodney with the murder of Christine Ruth Thornton, 28, who disappeared in 1978, whose body was found four years later, uh, six months pregnant at the time of her disappearance. DNA evidence linked Alcala to the crime, but prosecutors said he was too sick to be extradited to Wyoming to face the charges. Alcala also either linked via DNA evidence to, or at least strongly suspected, of additional homicides in Arizona, California, New Hampshire, New York, Washington State. Um uh, Six states, including Wyoming, at least six states. July 24th, 2021, while sitting on death row in California, Rodney finally dies of natural causes, unfortunately, age 77. Uh, Less than a year ago, as I record this, immediately some of his victims spoke up, expressing their relief that the dating game killer was gone. The planet is a better place without him, that's for sure, said Tali Shapiro. It's a long time coming, but he got his karma. Investigator Jeff Sheeman, who had been working on a cold case involving alcohol in Wyoming, said he's where he needs to be, and I'm sure that's in hell. Sheeman recalled that during interviews with police, Alcala would trace his finger along the faces of victims and photographs put before him, perhaps in hopes it would irritate and enrage detectives, maybe just turned him on. Throughout his investigation, Sheeman was overcome with just how cold Alcala was and ultimately came to believe that he may have taken untold scores of victims' lives that we'll never know about. And then finally, just last week, Rodney's mom, uh, now over a hundred years old, Talked about how much she missed her son and favorite photographer in a video released on her OnlyFans page, uh, recorded while she juggled three ping pong balls using Just Her Pussy. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not sure what's wrong with me uh, with that mom stuff. And with that, our timeline has wound down to a close.
1: Good job, soldier.
0: You made it back. Barely. Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. I love this TV appearance helped bring him down. Uh, Also, how insane that Rodney was chosen to be contestant on the dating game despite having already served two prison sentences, one for assaulting eight-year-old Tali Shapiro and the other for violating parole by taking 13-year-old Julie out of the woods for some pics when he was already a registered sex offender. Thank God for internet criminal databases allowing for pretty comprehensive background checks now. What a monster. Uh, No worse, unfortunately, though, than some of the other, other dirtbags we've covered. Right? Maybe that's uh, becoming the scariest part of doing these true crime episodes now for me. You know, as evil as some of these dudes are, and Rodney's so evil, uh, no more evil than Albert Fish, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Robert Berdella, Leonard Lake, uh, Charles Ng, David Parker Ray, you know, uh, Joseph Duncan, Joseph Fritzl, on and on and on. Once you stop seeing someone as a human being, when you truly only see them as a vehicle for your desires and their rights and feelings don't matter to you at all, and your desires are, you know, particularly dark, there's no limit to the pain and misery you're able to inflict on someone. Uh, More lenient when it comes to punishing vice uh, law offenders, uh, more aggressive when it comes to punishing sexual predators. Can we please move in that direction as a society going forward? Time now for today's top five takeaways.
1: Time suck. Top five takeaways.
0: Number one, Rodney Alcala brutally killed at least nine, but probably many more women between 1968 and 1979, and girls posed their bodies in gruesome arrangements for people to find undoubtedly scarring additional people forever. Number two, Rodney appeared on the popular TV show The Dating Game, September 13th, 1978, after getting convicted of crimes against minors twice, uh, would even win a date with the show's contestant, Cheryl Bradshaw, who thankfully decided not to go on the date with him. His appearance on the show would eventually help lead detectives to finding him. So thanks, Jim Lang. Number three, because she was too scared to testify, Rodney Alcala would only spend less than three years in prison for kidnapping, violently raping, and trying to kill an eight-year-old. Oh, that should never happen. Pleadial or not, they shouldn't have to testify in those situations. My God. Number four, Rodney bizarrely defending himself in court and asking himself questions in a different voice. uh, Definitely one of the stranger trial moments we've come across. Number five, new info, uh, did you know that Rodney's mom's OnlyFans account has over 35,000 subscribers? She may have lost her favorite photographer, but she still has uh, curves, leather, bondage gear, and the confidence that drew him to want to take so many nude pics in the first place. Uh, that, now I'm really done.
2: Uh,
0: no. Uh, did you know there was a reboot of The Dating Game that took the basic premise, uh, you know, and kind of like turned the dial up to 11? Singled Out was a show that ran from 1995 to 1998 on MTV, hosted by Chris Hardwick and Jenny McCarthy featured a single woman choosing a date from among 50 young men and a single man taking his turn with 50 women. As with its predecessor, the winning couple was set up on a date after the show. In each game, the featured contestant or picker would eliminate undesired dates using six categories ranging from the innocuous like height and weight to the blatantly sexual bedroom behavior package. Uh, Once eight or fewer remained, the picker would start asking them dating game style questions, having them perform certain tasks or both. The picker would then keep the candidate or dump him or her the three who survived. This would then be asked questions with two possible answers. Uh, For each one that matched the pickers, a candidate would move one step closer to the picker. Dumped contestants sometimes got a toilet flush sound effect when it happened. Others forced to wear a toilet seat label dumped around their necks. At one time, one of the show's performers, after being rejected, dropped his pants on the way out, showing the female picker his boxers with your loss, babe, and blazing across his ass. Uh, Will another reboot come back again? I guess maybe, but uh, with all the dating and hookup apps out there, who the fuck actually needs a TV show to help them find a date? Who wants to watch someone get a date? Well, I guess The Bachelor, Bachelor. I don't know. I, uh, I, ho- I hope it's done.
1: Time suck. Top five takeaways.
0: When I was in college many years ago, I actually played uh, uh, a parody of Jenny McCarthy. And a buddy of mine was Chris Hardwick. And we did a little dating game, uh, you know, singled out thing at uh, Gonzaga. I was fucking hammered. Uh, dating game killer has been sucked. What a fucking dark ride. My God. What a piece of shit. Whew, so vicious. Uh, thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team. Thanks to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for production. Thanks to Elixir for uh, upkeep on the Time Suck app. Logan the Art Warlock Keith creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and running socials with Lizzie and Chantres Hernandez. Thanks to Sophie Evans for the initial research this week. Thanks to the All Seen Eyes moderating the Cult the Curious private Facebook page. Thanks to Becky, Jesse, the Mod Squad, now making sure Discord keeps running smooth. And Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley Always checking in on Discord as well and uh, making sure it goes smooth. Next week, another huge topic, the Holocaust. Uh, Doing another two-parter with this one because uh, part one is going to be the history of the Holocaust. And then after covering facts while they're fresh in our minds, uh, we're going to dig into the Holocaust deniers, uh, that whole conspiracy in part two. See how fucked up people's brains can get when they uh, fall for the type of lies told by propagandists like, uh, you know, Putin. Uh, Between 1933 and 1945, Nazi Germany and its allies uh, established more than 44,000 camps and incarceration sites. These locations used uh, for a wide range of purposes, but the most horrific, the one we all associate with the word Holocaust today, the mass murder of Jews and other minorities in gas chambers by Nazi Germany. Of the 9 million Jews who lived in Europe before the Holocaust, right, roughly 9 million, estimated two-thirds murdered. Though the scale of mass killing was new, the prejudice was not. Nazi Germany When and where tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands or millions, let their moral compasses fall to the depths of Rodney Alcala for years, uh, just getting worse and worse, caring less and less about this, uh, these groups of people as they got closer to war. Uh, Good to remember how evil, you know, can become a cultural norm if you let your guard down. And, uh, you know, it's good to go over that. So hopefully we don't repeat what Hitler and his goons pulled off for far too long. Uh, Now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Starting things off with a message from uh, Rodney's mom. Uh, no, uh, starting things off with the Cummins Law moment, experienced by sexual deviant and top-notch meat sack Ken Morrison. Ken listens to bestiality porn and wants to talk about it. Yeah, here's what he has to say. Dan, I'm a fairly new sucker and space loser, by the way. Thank you. Uh, didn't take long to get Cummins Law either. My wife and I both work from home while well, the kids are at school, and neither of us are on the phone. I uh, listen to your past episodes. I'm really getting into, and I'm constantly telling my wife random facts about serial killers or crazy drug-fueled sex cults. I think I finally piqued her interest enough to listen, but I haven't got her to listen quite yet. Well, the other day, I'm working in my office. She is in hers, and I'm listening to an old episode of your podcasts. My wife walks in with my mom, a 71-year-old minister's wife, on speakerphone. Uh, they come in to ask about plans for Mother's Day, and they hear a detailed description of how to have sex with a squirrel. Mother's Day might be a tad awkward this year. On a positive note, I think my wife finally wants to listen to you just to see what in the hell, why in the hell you'd be talking about something like that. So maybe this is a good thing. Love the suck. Keep it up. Ken from Santan Valley, Arizona. Well, thank you, Ken. I have a great idea for how you can save Mother's Day now. How about, uh, as a gift to your mom for this year, what if you take a page out of, uh, you know, uh, fake uh, Rodney's book and offer to take some nudie pics of your mom? (laughs) You could offer to take uh, nude photos of your mom and your wife. Together, like a boudoir shoot, the two of them. What a fun family memory. Uh, At least bring it up and let us know how well it's received. (coughs) Hail, Luzofina, and good luck. Now for an awesome shout-out for an awesome sucker. Meet Sack and Colonel Erica Iverson. And she writes, Hi, Dan. Name-dropping a mutual friend, Ryan Shaw, to get some street cred. Uh, Ryan's great. Before Ryan quit the army, I had the pleasure of working with him in a few jobs. I'm still an active-duty colonel, reaching out with a personal request one of uh, i'm sure thousands you get you have an avid fan one of my troops major herman Bowles, who introduced me to your show a few months back he is promoting to lieutenant colonel this friday i was wondering begging if there's any way you would consider texting emailing calling shout out high five pretty much anything to acknowledge him herman is a future jet or herman is a future general he's a rock star and has helped build your fan base with a lot of earned media Uh, i know it's a big ask It would really mean the world to him if you're even just to do some kind of shout out in any forum. Thanks for the support of the troops. Always good to hear that in your podcast. Shadow people was my favorite, by the way. Love how you spooked yourself. Thanks so much for your consideration. Colonel Erica Iverson. Well, Colonel Iverson, I would fucking love to give your friend and sucker a shout out. Huge congrats to Lieutenant Colonel, future general Herman Bulls. Holy shit. You have a great name for being a badass officer. So thank you both for what you do. I hope you're proud, Lieutenant Colonel Bulls. That's a huge fucking accomplishment. Um, and tell Ryan hello, if you still keep in touch with him. He's, uh, he's, he's one of the stars. He's one of the rock stars of Riggins. From Riggins to West Point, that was a huge deal when he did that. And then he became a college professor, also a huge deal for, for someone from my town. All the girls also uh, always thought he was super hot and still do. My sister, uh, I'm going to embarrass her right now. She saw him at the class reunion and she was just like, God damn. He looks even better than he used to. Uh, She's happily married, but, you know, Ryan Shaw is a charismatic, good-looking guy who's a good friend and still seems like a great guy. Uh, My sister also talked a lot about how hot his wife is, so just throwing that out there. Uh, Now for a cool shout-out. But yes, but actually before I move on, after that, I truly, though, congratulations, Lieutenant Colonel Herman Bulls. That's fantastic. And thank you for spreading the word. And now for a cool shout-out from Discord lover, Sweet Sack, Jessica Lee, who writes, Dearest Suckmaster and the entire BMP family, Pirate queen, Jessica Lee, Uh, though your 467 different pronunciations of it make my day. I know because you don't spell either one of those names. Like they're pronounced. Um. (laughs) Admin on, like as if that's your choice. Admin on Discord along with my sweet Becky. I wanted to write it and thank you from the bottom of my heart for the community you've brought together. Thank you both for helping keep it going. My God, you do a lot more with it than I I do. Uh, I joined Discord at a low point for me and what I found changed my life forever. I found a platform that I could connect with so many people. They've been there for me through the last two and a half years without fail. I found the best people and best friends anyone could ask for, picked me up and pushed me when I couldn't move on my own. Admittedly, it isn't for everyone. The conversation moves fast and changes faster. More than an online community, the people have become family. Many of us have driven hours and hundreds of miles to see each other. As you know, the group of meat sacks you met in Nashville in 2020 were all from our family. That was awesome. There have been many meetups. Everyone there knows if they are driving to Iowa, my door's open and there was a spot on my table without question. Jokingly said to be a cult within the cult. It's not wrong, LOL. You've given us all a place to be safe no matter what and myself, uh, Becky and the mods, uh, uh, Ikey, Roman and Professor work hard to keep it that way. We just had 11,000 members uh, Tuesday, April 26th. So many of these people I hold dear, so very thankful for them. We are full of the best sarcastic dark humor. Yes, uh, you could ask for. I've laughed so uh, hard, my sides hurt for days. I've cried with them as we go through all the punches life throws at us together. We may be battle-worn on the other side, but we are together. Queenie, Sam, Becky, and Aaron, I love you girls to the moon and back. That's adorable. Cody and Becca, Vale, Wicked, Cloud, Mav, Doc, Tyler, Sergeant Dan, Psy, Artemis, Tree, Aveline, Poncho, and so many others. I love y'all. Derek, happy birthday. Doc Torb, Matt, buddy, we are thinking about you and hope all is going smoothly. We miss you. Honey, love, see you in August. Hot stuff. (laughs) Uh, without you, Dan, wouldn't have had this family. Thank you, Harmony, for starting the Discord. It's truly made a huge impact in my life. I welcome everyone to come join in the Discord. Uh, Join us. Tell them Pirate Queen sent you. As always, no shoes in the house. Pants are always optional. Never required. Wash your damn hands. All our love to BMP always, your admins, Jessica Lee and Becky. Well, hot damn, Jessica Lee and Becky. Yeah, I guess both of you do uh, thanks so much for being part of such a cool community for for running it, you know, for uh, thanks to Harmony for coming up with the idea that started. Thanks to Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for constantly overseeing it, checking in, having fun. I popped in there randomly. Yeah. And just like at one of the voice chat rooms. Yeah. I laughed so hard for like a half hour straight. Oh, just so. It much was craziness. a blast. Like just random people in there, just all yelling out dark humor stuff. That it was, a, is it was awesome. a blast. So go check it out, everybody. Yeah, go have fun in there. Uh, you know, if you like the show, you probably like dark humor. And yeah, thanks to all the admins and mods for keeping it going. I I just love how much fun everyone seems to have and how much community there is. So hail Nimrod to you all. And uh, now I'm going to end with my own update. I know this is a highly emotional issue, but regarding all the anti-abortion legislation lately going on, uh, so many courts around the U.S., including that Supreme Court leak, not enough time this week for me to carefully, thoughtfully express my thoughts thoroughly, I guess. uh, But I just felt compelled to say I'm with you women who just want the right to regulate your own reproductive systems as you women see fit? This is just a specific issue. I, I wish I wish men were not allowed to weigh in on it uh, legally. Uh, as someone who's pro freedom and pro woman, it's just a, it's an important issue to me, and I just feel bad for a lot of scared women, scared girls out there. Uh, you know, with what's happening, I'm just you know, in my opinion, the the country club crowd just seems determined to pass legislation that will only add to the misery of existing socioeconomic woe for people. That they don't have drinks with, right? That it's just going to widen the chasm between the rich and the poor. Rich parents who publicly support shit like this, they're still going to have the money to secretly get their teen daughters safe or themselves safe illegal abortions if they want to. And some will, you know, some will. Poor parents will not. Their children will be at a much higher risk for health problems, including death when they get the equivalent of back alley abortions. Uh, And they'll become further economically disadvantaged when they do have more kids they can't afford. The poor will struggle further to raise more kids, right, that they didn't want to have, adding to soaring higher educational costs, soaring private healthcare costs, soaring real estate costs, making it harder and harder for first-time homebuyers, relatively stagnant wages. Now there's going to be more mouths to feed that people can't afford to feed. How the fuck is that going to do anything but just grow the wealth disparity gap in this nation? Are we going to throw more people in an overcrowded prison system as well for abortion? Add some doctors, some scared women, some scared teen girls to people arrested for doing nonviolent shit like doing drugs. Like what are we doing truly? And if men could get pregnant, none of this would happen. If there was a majority of women legislators in America, this would not happen. Not trying to shit on the pro-life crowd. I do think your heart's in the right place. And I think that if you don't, feel that uh, an abortion is morally acceptable, then you shouldn't get one. But why do we have to force? It is subjective, no matter what some people want to believe. Why do we have to force that on other people? If my opinion upsets you, I hope we can agree to disagree. Dissenting voices, discourse, historically so important in America, in the Western world, so important to a healthy culture. We currently have a growing problem in our culture of fuck everyone who doesn't agree with me. I'll just go to my little echo chamber on the web or wherever and uh, just get a bunch of fucking high fives. That attitude weakens our culture. Putin's troll farms and bots, they don't need more help with that. As always, I welcome feedback, agreement and dissent. I'm not anti-fetus. I'm just very pro-woman. Hail Lucifina. Thanks for listening, whether you agree with me or not. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast in the bag, meat sacks. (laughs) I thought this was going to be a shorter one, but look what I've done. Uh, Please do not lure anyone anywhere under the guise of a photo shoot when really you just want to bite their genitals and choke them to death. If you really, really want to do that, maybe just throw yourself off a cliff instead. Or just quietly keep on sucking.
2: Bad
0: Magic Productions. Hey, what's up, man? Oh boy, check this out. What is that? Look at. Oh shit! <laughs> look the, at that. Is that Rodney's mom's fan account? How? Sh- that's flexibility. That's, and the fucking ping pong balls mm-hmm. that she can juggle them in that position. Well, yeah, yeah, here, check out this video. Oh my god! I know. Look how high. It's like they're like 15 feet in the air. No wonder Rodney took so many nudie pics of his mom. And I'm a subscriber. Yeah. She, has a bit, she doesn't drop a single ball for 15 minutes. Oh, my God. No, so whatever kegels or kegels. Why does such a bad person come from such a good lady? I don't know. I mean, <sighs> I say that about all these crazy fucks, right? I'll never, never understand the world. He had such a great mom, such a hot, great mom, talented. Look at him.